The following message is from the desk of the mayor of Los Angeles. Due to the severe California drought, there is no longer enough water in our city to support both the ice for a hockey team and the grass for a baseball team. So as of today, all turf at Dodger Stadium will be torn out and all ice at Staples Center will be melted to save the mayor's orchid garden and both will be replaced with California native drought-tolerant gravel. Have at it, boys! Due to the gravel drought, all gravel at Dodger Stadium and Staples Center will be replaced with fire ants. Slide! Slide at the second! No! No! Slide! Alright! Due to the dietary habits of the sandworms awakened by the drought, all fire ants at Dodger Stadium and Staples Center will be replaced with live grenades. He crosses the line, passes to the left, winds up, takes the shot. Due to the increased war effort against the sandworms, all live grenades at Dodger Stadium and Staples Center will be replaced with the original grass and ice. I miss the fire ants. I'm a little mouse that comes visits the show. Oh my god, you're disgusting. That, that intro hurt my throat. Everyone, I want you to know that Daniel's here in a bathrobe. <laughs> he keeps insisting that he knew this was today, but he's not ready. I, it was just so unexpected. <laughs> uh, this is your bachelor party. I dragged you out of bed at four in the morning to come and record a podcast You kidnapped me. me. <laughs> Hi. Hello. Welcome back. We've been in this room since last month uh, because it's a continuation episode and we take it very seriously. Mm -hmm. Continuation of the misery that started one month ago. (laughs) We've just been here ruminating on the Dodgers. Just lock the door. Lock the gates. Lock the gate. I hate you. Pow! (laughs) I just recorded a podcast. What the reference? So this is episode 22 of LA Meekly, the podcast. This is your host, Daniel Zafrin, accompanied by your other host. Podcast co-host number 14. Greg Gonzalez. That's how I'd get introduced if I was a Dodger. <laughs> and now, 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 on the microphone, gangly Greg Gonzalez. Yes, so we're continuing from last month. Last month we reviewed. reviewed. We, we went reviewed. over. We tested out every baseball <laughs> stadium in this city. We went over the early, ba- the pre-Dodger baseball history of yes. Los Angeles and all those stadiums. Mm-hmm. And then the creation of Dodger Stadium leading up to... A little team I like to call the Doyers. I got you all the way to opening day on the Dodger side. You have not been invited inside the stadium yet. Oh, you you have, but it you know wasn't built yet. Tickets, please, Monsieur. No ticket. So I'm gonna get you started. You know, I, I assumed that you've been waiting next to your uh, iPhone, iPod, computer, however you listen to this thing. Zune. <laughs> Some of you put this. You download this on a friend's computer, put it on a floppy, and listen it to your <laughs> at your house at home. Between one to eighty-five floppy disks. <laughs> I tackled the history of the Dodgers. Not an easy feat at all. It's sort of like I said before. It was like uh, doing a history of crime. Like a, <laughs> like I didn't know where to start or how to encapsulate everything, but I did my or best. Or who was guilty? 
Everybody. Haven't you seen True Detective? Everyone's guilty. Except the women. <laughs> so I'm going to get started. All right. All right. Take it away. I'll be napping in the corner. Okay. Every Let me time. just put on my shades with the my eyes drawn on the front. Okay. So just to clear up an old question I have, the Dodgers aren't called that because the players have dodged every military draft that has come into effect. <laughs> it's because the area they were from, Brooklyn, was so dense with- Where tro- that at? Uh, east. Brooklyn was so dense with trolley cars that residents were known to be dodging trolleys uh-huh. to get around. The Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers was the original name, which eventually uh-huh. got changed to the Brooklyn Dodgers which eventually got changed to a continental bounce to Los Angeles Trolley Dodgers, which isn't true. And that eventually got changed to Los Angeles Dodgers. We had trolleys over here, but nobody dodged them because they were really slow. The Trolley Dodgers weren't their first name, by the way. Before that, they were the Bridegrooms, which is a ridiculous name for a baseball team. What? Yeah, the Bridegrooms, named so after the marriage of one of their players. The mascot was a, like a bird that had to make a phone call every 20 minutes to make sure everything he was doing was okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Marriage. <laughs> Women. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Hand in the crotch. <laughs> everything I do is gross. Peg, you're ugly. Get over here. We're a modern family. <laughs> so after that, they, they went as the Brooklyn Robins during the 20s. And by the 30s, they changed their name to the Trolley Dodgers, which is a much cooler name. Cooler than the Bridegroom, which is a phrase that nobody uses no, anymore. No, it, I think like right after they said it, they're like, no, no, this can't stick. I don't want to spend too much time in Brooklyn. I can't imagine anyone who would. Hmm, but I... Yeah, yeah. No, nothing. No, Just no, forget no. about it. <laughs> but I have to uh, at least give everyone listening a feeling of why it hurts so many people when, when they left <laughs> the Dodgers. I at least need to name every single person born in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell us why it hurt, because I know it's affected my family very deeply. Oh, yeah. I know, I'm, I've know. i known some people that moved to California to follow the Brooklyn Dodgers over here. Mm-hmm. That's money. Mike Piazza. So before they are moved to Ebbets Field in 1913, the Brooklyn Dodgers, who were affectionately called Dem Bums, as I mentioned before, uh-huh. they were like the bad news bears of the National <laughs> League, which is adult-sized baseball. <laughs> in 1920, though, the Brooklyn Dodgers, then known as Brooklyn Robins at the time, managed to win the National League pennant. And after that, they started a 21-year-long dry season <laughs> as they struggled to make any championship game. Is the pennant the winner of the conference, or is that the big... Like, if you win the World Series, what do you win? You know, trophy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. World's best player trophy. You're champions of the world, even though it's only in one country that plays baseball. I mean, other countries play baseball, hey. but we only play ourselves. Hey, we absorb the rest of them. Japan, Japan is a suburb of California. <laughs> the pennant is like the playoff stuff that leads to the last two teams that go to the World Series. So then what do you win when you win the World Series? The Stanley Cup. <laughs> this is a ludicrous question. This was not something I had to learn. This is a Chris Bridges question. <laughs> Someone explained it to me, and I was like, uh-huh. So who's Brooks Robinson? He's <laughs> so, an Oriole. He's not a Dodger. <laughs> so who's on first? The Dodgers were like the laughing stock for a baseball for a long time. They were managed under the leadership of a guy named Wilbert Robinson. And for a short time, Casey Stengel, who was like one of the best baseball managers in the history of the game, he went on to lead the, the Yankees to a many a victory. For those who don't know, much as there is Chandlerisms, which are lines that sum up the attitude of Raymond Chandler, there is like Stengelisms. Like, which best sum up the surliness Beautiful of, name. of Casey Stengel. Here's a couple of his classic Stengelisms. <laughs> if anyone wants me, tell him I'm being embalmed. Classic, classic. Stengelism. <laughs> Been in this game 100 years, but I see new ways to lose them I never knew existed before. <laughs> so now they're in this period. The Dodgers were known for pulling boners, boneheaded plays as they were. Go on. Very elaborately. <laughs> there was a play many people remember when Babe Herman, who was not Babe Ruth, attempted <laughs> to stretch a double into a triple. It was Baby Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> and when he got to third base, he found two other players standing there with him. <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> I don't want to go! The 30s was a good time for transitions for the Trolley Dodgers, despite the fact that this was a decade where they would still be struggling. I've heard different things about their manager, Wilbert Robinson. I read that his leadership was like clown-like, but I also read that he was like one of the warmest and most jovial managers. They even referred to him as Uncle Robbie. Either way, Robinson leaves 
leaves in 1931 and the Dodgers go through like a string of upsetting managers until 1938 when Larry McPhail steps up. Now McPhail makes it clear. <laughs> that's a very funny name. We got to get this team to winners. Hire <laughs> McPhail. <laughs> no, what? What is about his name? I don't get it. What? Loser McPhail. What's the big <laughs> Loser name? zero McPhail. I don't see how we could go wrong. From the Never McGuinn family, right? So he comes aboard and he is just not going to have any of this like wacky Dodgers and look at the stuff we do and look at all the boners we're pulling. So he upgraded Ebbets Field. He installed lights for the night games, which were a new thing. Mm. And he shattered this old gentleman's agreement between the three New York teams. And he put the Dodgers on the radio. The three teams had made this agreement that they didn't want any broadcast games on the radio because they thought it was going to hinder attendance. Hmm. McPhail said, I can't hear you. The radio's too loud. (laughs) It should be mentioned that on August 26, 1939, the Brooklyn Dodgers played the very first televised baseball game. Really? Yeah, against Cincinnati. The Reds. Hmm. The Reds was a team that McPhail had previously saved from the sports gutter. He was pretty good at this. McWin. McWin. You know what? I'm going to change his name today. <laughs> to the county office. Under the tutelage of McPhail and another guy named Leo DeRocher, the team began to gain the winning momentum. And in just three years, after a series of smart trades, they became like pennant favorites again. So by 1940, they finished second place with a solid 88 to 65 record. And by 1941, they found themselves breaking their 21 year struggle on the field with a 154 loss record, winning them the National League pennant. They faced the Yankees that year at the World Series, but they lost. But it doesn't matter, though, because they had already already like built up this winning momentum still they didn't win but they had like momentum yeah momentum is all good but does it pay the uh you know does it buy me my peanuts and cracker jacks <laughs> quite frankly i don't know if i ever want to come back god damn you so the 40s were a great time for the dodgers which featured a powerhouse that was pete riser who led the league in batting runs score total bases slugging percentage triples they struggled some mid-decade but they put up like a hell of a fight 1947 jackie robinson who spent his early yeah, athletic days pasadena in, boy pasadena boy which is probably how he got so good he was invited to play for the, the water Bur- that's i've always <laughs> said it, it's that pasadena water that clean healthy air into a star does everyone know that we have the Fountain of Youth in California? It's in Pasadena. Do people know that? Anyone who drinks the water in Pasadena can play in any league, no matter what color this skin is. <laughs> he was invited to play the Brooklyn Dodgers, 1947, breaking the color line, which people held onto so tightly. <laughs> Anyone who doubted his ability quickly shut up because he was a tremendous player. He was like, <laughs> just watching him was such like, an electric experience. Again, in 1947, the Dodgers once again met the Yankees at the World Series, and once again, the Yankees took it away from them. So now come the Dodgers of the 50s, they were something else. Them bums were proving their worth throughout the decade. One of the major factors in all of this is when the club's attorney was appointed to be the new president of the team. This was Walter O'Malley. This was in October of 1950. O'Malley, you remember from last episode, he's a gentleman who stubbornly brought the <laughs> Dodgers over here. Also in 1950, we have the appearance of a long-time Dodger, a man who is still around today. Mike Piazza. Mike Piazza. He started when he was four years old. He started <laughs> as a ball, and now he's a ball player. Mikey Piazza? <laughs> he started as a ball when he still had yet to be reincarnated as a human. <laughs> you got a cocoon, buddy. You got a cocoon into a big catcher. 1950. One of the most revered members of the club. At the tender age of 22, Vin Scully was brought aboard as the broadcaster along Old Standard's Red Bobber, who I always thought talked... The Big Bopper? <laughs> the Big Bopper, yeah. Red Barber, who was an announcer, an old-time announcer, and when he talks, he talks like this, but he doesn't, like, announce like that. Wait a second. Vin Scully has been announcing for the Dodgers since 1950? Since he was 22. He's since Brooklyn. What? Yeah. I had no idea. Was, that's ridiculous. I, I learned that and I thought that's amazing. Oh, How old is he? Like 400? He's like 400. How old would he be? Let's think about it. It's 2015. He was 22 he be, in He'd be like 87? We should look it up before we continue. Hang on. Let me call Vince Scully. Siri. Siri, how old is Vince Scully? There is no such number for that age. 87. <laughs> he is 87 years old. I should probably win the pennant for quickest <laughs> math, <laughs> but I won't win the World Series. Yankees. <laughs> the damn Yankees. So they had Red Barber and they had 
Connie Desmond. Soon after Scully was taken in, Red Barber left the ball club for the Yankees, and Connie Desmond was becoming unreliable because he was a goddamn drunk, <laughs> which left Scully as a primary announcer, which he still holds to this day. Wow. 2015. Good for him. Good for him. 87 years old. Good for him. My God. Does he even still have vocal cords? They, I mean, he's said so many words that they could just patch it together and he just sits there and smiles at everybody in a nice suit. Hi, how are you? How are you doing? How are you doing? Mike Piot. Uh. <laughs> Managers change hand again at this point and by the early 50s we have Chuck Dresden and by 54 we have Walter Alston who is described as stoic. He let the Dodgers out on a long leash but he still held the leash. You know what I mean? Like he had a lot of control but he also let the players be themselves and function. Between Dresden and Alston, the Dodgers win back-to-back pennants in 52 and 53 and again in 56. The Dodgers in 53 were spectacular. They had a nickname, the Boys of the Summer, like the song. I'm gonna name them. Jackie Robinson, Pee Wee Reese, Roy Campanella, Gil Hodges, Carl Ferrillo, Don Newcomb, Carl Erkstein, Jim Gilliam, Duke Snyder, Preacher Rowe, and Clem Labine. The boys of the summer won a club record 105 games, kicking ass and taking names because that's how rosters work. What? How many games are in a baseball season? I think it's 150 something. My God, they missed 50 games. <laughs> Damn bums. In 55, the Dodgers once again met up with the Yankees at World Series. Guess what? The butt of a chicken. The butt of a chicken. Oh no. Mm-hmm. Oh no. Can you, can you believe oh. it? <laughs> <laughs> Let me at him. <laughs> Spoiler alert. The Dodgers take the World Series 2-0 from the Yankees, a spectacular feat. It should be mentioned that the next year, 56, the Dodgers and the New York Yankees once again face off of the World Series. They went seven games. In the fifth game, Yankee pitcher Don Larson threw a no-hitter against the Dodgers. In the seventh game, the score was 9-0 Yankees. Damn, damn, Brooklyn bums! <laughs> no matter, though, in eight of the ten years of that decade, the Dodgers never finished lower than second place while winning 913 games, the most wins in a Dodger decade in Dodger history. My Dodger decade. What did I say? Once in the Dodger decade. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine over 40 years, this team built up such a strong momentum. They went from being a, like a laughing stock to winning the World Series against their town rivals. They broke the color line. They were a first televised team. Now imagine being like a diehard fan and sticking with them bums for as long as you can remember. They might have like sucked and lost every <laughs> game, but that was your team. And when they win, that like that pride and loyalty was rewarded. So during this era, mid-50s, Walter O'Malley was tired of Ebbets Field. O'Malley was battling with the city manager, Robert Moses, over building a new ballpark for the team, but Moses wouldn't have it. And that fuss O'Malley. The city owned Ebbets Field, so anything O'Malley wanted to change had to be cleared, and without approval to build a new park, he threatened to take his team to a city that would accommodate him. On the other side of the continent, Los Angeles County Supervisor Kenneth Hahn was looking to bring a major league baseball team to the area. Now, we had several minor league teams, which you discussed last time, mm-hmm. when they were very good, but the city was looking to draw in a bigger crowd with an established team. Fools. All we needed were angels We just needed to hire. We just needed to hire actors to come play ball. <laughs> we would have had the uh, biggest team in the world. Let's bring in Joe E. Brown's team. <laughs> Rock Hudson slides into third. <laughs> and uh, we're not talking about the base. <laughs> so how is serendipitous that O'Malley is looking for a ballpark he can control and Han is looking for the winniest team for the city. <laughs> Refer to the last episode to see how this decision wrongly put families out of home so they could play ball. See you in an hour and 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so when news hit New York, Mayor Wagner and Robert Moses made this like half-hearted effort to save the Brooklyn Dodgers from westbound intentions by offering them a ballpark on the world's fairgrounds in Queens. But O'Malley wanted complete control of his ballpark and if it remained there in New York, he'd have to share control because it'd still have to be approved by the city. So it was a hard decision for him because he knew he would break Brooklyn baseball fans' hearts, but he, you know, damn it, he wanted control. <laughs> I'm trying to be a fair man. I just want complete control <laughs> over all of you. Now, Brooklyn was, like, used to getting its heart broken by the Dodgers. But, but not this, like this. But not like this. <laughs> because every year before this, they could be like, well, maybe next year, but now there wasn't, like, a next year. Like, this was it. He'll always come back to me. <laughs> They're still waiting for the Dodgers to come back. They're, like, waiting at the airport. The Brooklyn Dodgers played their final game at Ebbets Field on September 24th. Anniversaries are coming up. 1957, with the Dodgers won 2-0 over the Pirates. After 68 seasons playing at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn was going to lose them bums to the 68 West. 68 seasons? Yeah. That's crazy. Baseball's Wait, old. 68 seasons? Yeah. When did they start? Like 1890s. My God. 
God. They came over Same on the players. Mayflower, <laughs> the Nino, the Pinta, <laughs> and the shortstop. We've been batting these turnips around for months now. The Dodgers versus the Navajo. <laughs> Smallpox wins. Smallpox always wins. So Brooklyn lost them bums to the West. Very sad. And they never forgave us. Mm-hmm. To add to that, the New York Giants left the Big yeah. Apple for San Francisco. At least we'll always have the Giants. <laughs> um, we just have the Yankees. Oh, God. The best team in the sport. <laughs> Darn. Shut uh, up. Let's make another one. The hell's a Met to add? The Trolley Mets. Because <laughs> they met the trolley at every corner when they got hit by it. Don't you get it? It's a Brooklyn thing. Forget about it again. Once again, we're talking here. <laughs> I'm trolleying here. <laughs> if you walk a battery. I'm, wa- hey, I'm walking here. Anyways, to add to all of this high drama, this high sports melodrama, Roy Campanella, one of the boys this summer, was paralyzed in a car accident. Oh, no. Many, many people call it the end of an era. Not Los Angeles, though. We got a baseball team. We just had to forcefully remove families from their homes. But we got Dodger dogs, so, you know, game on. <laughs> all the Dodgers came to the West and bought surfboards. So the Dodgers get to Los Angeles, but they get here like 57, 58. Dodger Stadium is like nowhere near being ready for gameplay. So in the meantime, the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum would house the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. Imagine that. The perfectly shaped place to play baseball. <laughs> Opening day was on April 18th, 1958. And the ceremony started at 10.30 in the morning on the steps of City Hall. As the Dodgers they marched t- down to the Coliseum. Mm-hmm. They had filled out all the proper paperwork. <laughs> they took their seats in front of a big crowd. Senoritas from Olvero Street took off the players' caps and cracked their heads with confetti-filled eggs for good luck. It's, mm-hmm. Hey, it's good luck. I've seen those confetti eggs around Olvero Street. Does that mean the Dodgers were nearby? Yeah, that's the clue that they're close. <laughs> it's like the ectoplasm they leave behind. <laughs> the Dodgers been here. Walter O'Malley presented an autographed home plate to Mayor Norris Polson, mm-hmm. who, if you remember from the last episode, made it a point in his campaign to stop low-income housing project promised to Chavez Ravine because of the anti-socialist fears. Mayor Polson bought that land later back from the federal government at a drastically reduced price with the stipulation Polson. that the land be used for a public purpose. Don't get mad at us because you voted for him. <laughs> After the ceremony at City Hall, the Dodgers were paraded down Broadway in a motorcade of open cars, so this whole city could see the boys of the summer before their first game as our home team which i think is pretty cool yeah <laughs> uh concerns questions remarks i saw what happened to kennedy i'm a little <laughs> concerned you know we did have a book depository very close to broadway <laughs> listen to episode one to find out all about the book depository <laughs> their first game in los angeles was against the other new york team that is no longer a new york team the san francisco giants <laughs> pitching for us was called irk sign first game in their new hometown the dodgers beat the giants 6-5 before 78,672 fans at the coliseum let's talk about the coliseum as a baseball park for a yeah, moment i've seen the pictures yeah it's it's just like a hard line cutting yeah through. <laughs> yeah they're like okay an oval we'll just build a funky wall here. <laughs> Triangle does not fit in oval. <laughs> I, I know there's no corners in an oval, but we'll just like wedge them to like a pit. Like this is a, just the pit edge of it. First base is going to be above third. Like it's a great football, football stadium, but like it's so cavernous. The stands are so high up. If you have trouble thinking about what it looks like, think about playing baseball in a battle scene in Gladiator. <laughs> to accommodate the diamond shape of a normal baseball stadium, like you were saying, they stuck home plate in one edge of it and they installed a 42 foot high removal screen on the north side of the stadium to put boundaries for outfield. This screen was notorious and any Dodger who played in this days has like a story about that left field screen <laughs> which was so short and on top of that the ballpark was tremendously deep in the right and center field. <laughs> it's um, like a Picasso baseball diamond. <laughs> <laughs> so there were like an irregular amount of singles on the left side and no one could hit a home run like down there. So like it had an advantage if you're right handed or left handed. It was very strange because it took a long time for baseball games uh, other than the Coliseum to conform to perfect dimensions so all 
all the games anywhere you play are like the same like a fair game mm-hmm. because for like decades they were still struggling like oh that's too far this is too deep yeah, yeah. like the Wrigley Field in Los Angeles exactly exactly tilted in yeah 250 foot home runs to the left 440 foot flyouts to the right outfielders <laughs> struggling to pick up balls there was a combination of concrete single deck seats that went very high no shade for the fans which called a tremendous glare an outfielder said once that it was an issue at times if too many fans were wearing white shirts because the sun was bouncing off them and would blind them if they're trying to catch them if they had to look up and catch a fly ball it was horrible on kkk night (laughs) that was jackie robinson bobblehead night and they were not happy what's this (laughs) he's a good player that converted so many kkk members they tore off their hoods the dodgers played at coliseum for four seasons from 50 to 61 and they had great attendance for this time over that period more than 1.8 million fans watched the dodgers play the four seasons they played at the coliseum imagine that oh okay i'll see you next year at the coliseum Oh, God. Still. Still, really? In 1958, they finished seventh with a 71-83 record, which is not too great. But they were playing baseball on a football field, so what do you want? <laughs> they were trying their best, okay? They're in Newtown. They didn't know where to get food. No matter, though, because 1959 was the year for the Dodgers. If O'Malley and the Dodgers were wondering if they made the right move, this year would reward their vision. The Dodgers went to the World Series with Chicago, uh, the White Sox, for six games. In October of that year, they won the championship mm. against the Sox 9-3 at Comiskey Park in Chicago. Wow. Although they played in Los Angeles for a lot of those games, this was the first and only time that the World Series was played at the LA Memorial. Coliseum, good. And it was also the first World Series games that were played on the west side. Two young pitchers made appearances during the World Series game. Mike Piazza. Mike Piazza. And, and his, Kevin Piazza, his brother. Mike Deep Dish Piazza. <laughs> <laughs> he had a strange name, but it was Italian and no one questioned it. <laughs> no one questioned it because he wasn't Irish. <laughs> Don Drysdale and Sandy Koufax. These two pitchers, along with many other Dodger greats, names. went on to define Dodgers in the 60s. So now the, the boys in blue, uh, the Dodgers, not cops, have got a city behind them because they won the World Series and they are getting situated in their new surroundings. While Packer bags boys because we're taking the game to Chavez Ravine that's right haunted maybe (laughs) fun That's right. Three years after their big win, the stadium that was promised to the team was finally ready. The Dodgers will be playing at Dodgers Stadium, named after them. Opening day was April 10th. Coincidence? Coincidence? I don't think so. Opening day, April 10th, 1962. I had previously said that 2 million people attended the game and you questioned it and I said, shut up, I'm talking here. (laughs) What I meant was, shut up, I'm talking here. 2 million people showed up that first year. I apologize. Uh, Okay, good. But the first game saw over 52,000 people crowded into that little stadium. They played the Cincinnati Reds. Again. Lost 6-3 at their new home. Welcome home, boys. Great job. <laughs> Back to your old tricks. I'm so glad. <laughs> so glad we built this for you. Oh, there's something that I left Tear out. Tear it down. <laughs> Don't put that shovel down. Start burying these boys under the stadium. <laughs> Opening day for Dodger Stadium, they realized too late that there was an oversight everyone had missed, which I heard was somewhat common at the time, not just like at stadiums, but when they built buildings. Dodger Stadium only had two drinking fountains, one for each dugout. I thought you were going to say one for white people. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like no one. No fans had a water fountain. Wow. Like the, the dugouts had water fountains. Great. Buy they, beer. <laughs> That's what they the conspiracy they thought. They thought that yeah. O'Malley was just trying to drive Shotty. beer sales and he was vehemently again like, No, I didn't No, I'm not I want you to come and enjoy yourself, please. Like we Please, all you have to do is drink beer. <laughs> and then take the trolley down to Exposition Park and go to the longest bar and buy all the beer there. The longest bar from Exposition Park stretched to Dodger Stadium. <laughs> Closure. Closure. Oh, you finally learned where it went. <laughs> One woman asked an employee where she can get water and he suggested the tap in the ladies' restroom. The Dodgers didn't need to wait long to win a game in their new sticks. The very next day, April 11th, once again against the Cincinnati Reds, they beat them 6-2. I'm very good, huh? I don't know much about baseball, but I know that 6 is bigger than 2. Is that how winning works? (laughs) The numbers have to be bigger. Yeah. But golf is different. No, golf is the same. When you hit the, the golf ball, people are going to try to catch it before it gets in the hole. Well, the greatest goalie in golf history was Michael Jordan. Oh, that's another episode. We'll get into yeah, that Yeah, later. yeah, yeah. I don't want to spoil it. The, <laughs> many credit the win against the Cincinnati Reds to the pitcher. One of the greatest pitchers the sport has ever seen, Sandy Koufax. Mike. 
Piazza. <laughs> Mike Piazza hit the ball, and Mike Piazza <laughs> caught it. But not before sending it to second baseman Mike Piazza, who got him on at second, sent it over to first <laughs> baseman Mike Piazza, and got Mike Piazza out at Mike Piazza. Court. Mike Piazza Stadium. The Mike Piazza Stadium, thank you. Colfax. Sandy Colfax is on the Mount Rushmore of the Dodgers. If they had to send six Dodgers to space for an alien knife to understand how the sport was played in Los Angeles, California, Colfax would be in the capsule. <laughs> not only a great Dodger, he is one of the most controlled, precise pitchers the game has ever seen. Colfax was born and raised in a Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn and was signed to the yeah. Dodgers at age. <laughs> Just like me, born in 1902. <laughs> the Jewish immigrants <laughs> escaping anti-Semitism in the old country. Living next to Benny Goodman. He was signed to the Dodgers at the age of 19 after a scout house fat well, after a scout. This boy's really fat. We <laughs> signed him. We've signed him at a fat camp. It's something about the way he cried. There was a scout saw how fast he could throw at the age of 19 and they signed him really quickly. Sent him directly to the majors. In truth though, Colfax wasn't particularly fond of baseball. He was a bigger fan of basketball. Could play that very well. But he, he was Jewish. But he was Jewish. He also didn't see himself as a career ball player either of any sport. He actually wanted to be an architect. Mm-hmm. That sort of modesty runs through Colfax's prime years as a pitcher. He's very soft-spoken. He shied away from the limelight. But on the field, he threw like a monster of a fastball. <laughs> he wasn't like aggressive what? <laughs> no, I'm just thinking about a Jewish monster. The golem. <laughs> the, golem the golem didn't speak much, but you were scared of him. He wasn't an aggressive competitor either. He wouldn't like throw to hit batters or anything like that. Like he was just like, I'm going to strike you out. I hope you're okay with that. <laughs> nothing <laughs> personal. <laughs> nothing personal. I just have to win the game. His early days on the mound were rough because he threw really fast and had no control. His pitches were seen as wild. Then after about like six years of this erratic pitching, which wild, per- wild pitching to wild and crazy pitches. <laughs> During this period, he like permanently injured his left pitching arm at the uh, left pitch. Arm. I mean, his pitching arm, he's a left-armed man. He has one left arm. <laughs> he was the left-armed man? Oh, no. No, he left his arm in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. And uh, we're going. <laughs> one of the Dodger catchers, Norm Sherry, approached Koufax on a bus trip and quietly coached him on the matter, saying he needed to throw hard to get batters out. As Koufax later put it, once he learned to not try to strike people out, but instead try to make them hit the ball, he gained this like powerful insight into the idea of controlling his pitches. And that was it. That's all he needed. You gotta control your pitches. You gotta control your... Where are the pitches at? Right here in your hands, Colfax. It was in your hand all along, (laughs) Colfax. After that, like, Titan of baseball, for five years, he dominated the National League. In 1965, he struck out 382 batters at the plate. But the games weren't easy on him at all because of that elbow injury. Mm -hmm. Before games, he would apply a massive amount of heat to his elbow. And after the games... He would climb to the highest volcano. (laughs) (laughs) This is for you, volcano. Because he was like Superman. He had energized with lava. It's the sun and lava are not the same thing. But in my head, in this joke, it's the same thing. Because if you melt the sun, it's lava. <laughs> That's how volcanoes work. If I know one thing about this universe, is that all of Earth's lava comes from the sun. <laughs> the sun is dripping at all times into mountains, and the mountains cry lava. Refer to episode Mount Vesuvius. <laughs> For all of Greg's conspiracy theories, <laughs> that secret episode that was quickly taken down because he posted it without me knowing, he recorded in his car that one night. <laughs> What's the moon really? You know who's really in charge of all of Hollywood? <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> so before games, he would apply a massive amount to heat to his arm and after games he'd plunge it into ice water which again could only be agonizing before every game yeah. he was also taking painkillers to deal with all of this so uh-huh. while he was beating all these records he was struggling to keep up with his well-being he was far from alone in pushing the Dodgers to successes they saw in the 60s the other fiery pitcher the ying to Koufax's yang was Van Nuys's own Don Drysdale the Dodgers brought Drysdale aboard in 1956 and from what I'm guessing he waited here for the team to arrive to get him <laughs> he was the place all the Dodgers stayed 
when they first came. <laughs> how many beds do you have? <laughs> Van Nuys, how big is Van Nuys? Yeah, 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 we'll all stay there with you. Once he started playing, he remained at the top of the roster for like the next 13 years. He was a very intimidating pitcher. He wasn't like Koufax, like calm and collected. He was very aggressive, intimidating. He wasn't afraid to beam a batter who crowded over the plate. I found a quote in an article from a sports writer named Dave Anderson, and he said of Drysdale, home plate is 17 inches wide, but to Don Drysdale, it is divided into three parts. The inside four inches, the middle nine inches, and the outside four inches. To him, only the middle part belongs to the hitter. The inside of the outside belongs to the pitcher. Get it? I, okay, I, I'm gotta, I gotta get a ruler. It's a ruler joke. Drysdale set a record for hitting batters during his career, striking a total 152 batters at the plate. He didn't like them. Uh, starting in 60... 152 batters, my God. Starting in 62 and ending in 66, Koufax and Drysdale dominated the National League and became an unstoppable pitching duo across the entire sport. Together, they set the National League season record for combined teammate strikeouts with 592 strikeouts. No, 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 no. Take me to Dodger Stadium now. Also, a player who needs mentioning is shortstop Maury Willis, who was like a light bolt of a human being he stole like 104 bases there's also uh and he also stole a bunch of paper clips and <laughs> staplers from the- he has like a real problem like he cannot stop it makes him feel good and it's like a high <laughs> there's also center fielder tommy davis who won the batting crown and was like a leader in rbis who's which is the only thing daniel hey, knows about there's baseball. only one leader in rbis <laughs> in this podcast and it's old me <laughs> tommy davis won two consecutive batting titles in 62 and 63 and had a lifetime 304 average with the team his brother willie davis was another outfielder who was an outstanding hitter. He had a 31-game hitting streak later in that decade. With this team assembled, along with many other greats that came from Brooklyn that a lot of people claim were over the hill, but they still had a lot of good games in them. Gil Hodges, Duke Snyder, Carl Orkstein, Pee Wee Reese. With all these people set together, Pee Wee Herman Reese. The Dodgers were set to make West Coast baseball famous. I know Pee Wee Reese. Do you? Well, I don't know him. But, but you I, know, I know of him. Because he's the one who, one time, when Jackie Robinson was still on the Dodgers. Yes. <laughs> back, yes. In, back in Dodgertown. Dodgertown? Dodgertown? They were playing, I don't know, where, no, they were playing somewhere and all these people were yelling all these racist things to Jackie Robinson. Then at the end of the game, Pee Wee Reese came and put his arm around his shoulder to... That was Pee Wee Reese? That was Pee Wee Reese. I didn't know that. I heard that story before, but I didn't know who it was. Yep. But you know what? I, I love Pee Wee Reese. You know what? I love racial equality. I'm a big fan of it. Oh my god. I've what? sort of always believed in it, you know? I'm a recent convert. End of episode. <laughs> Submit this episode to the bodies. So in 1963, they won the National League pennant, winning 19 games in the final month of the season. They beat the Yankees out to win the World Series there. And again, in 1965, they were world champions, taking the Minnesota Twins for seven games. So they were just winning all over the 60s. Wow. Dodgers were a powerhouse team. But despite this, across the board, baseball players were struggling with their wages since they didn't have a union at the time. In 1946, the major league owners had established a minimum salary of $5,000 a year for players. By 1960. 1960- Get a real job. This is like a side thing. Your dream, isn't it? It's time to put aside your little hobby and become a welder like the rest of us. But seriously, like I bet my entire house on this, so you better win. But then in the morning, you got to go back to work. In 1966, 20 years later, it only risen $2,000 more. It was like $7,000 a year for them, which was quite embarrassing. And it was hard for ballplayers to live on, especially since if you know how the deal we make with athletes is basically like you ruin your body for the love for of the, our entertainment. Yeah, for our entertainment, for the love of the game. And when you're like, when you're done, you're just no more use. You either retire or sink in the leagues. Mm. And you for, better hope that you can announce games <laughs> in multiple languages because we're gonna need that <laughs> two weeks before the 1966 season Koufax and Drysdale demanded a pay raise from Walter O'Malley they wanted to be negotiated as a pair not individually and through their agent which was like a new thing at the time <laughs> they felt like without their combined efforts on the mound the Dodgers would sink so they thought they had a pretty good case and if you know anything about Walter O'Malley that made him uh, happy I- I'm so happy <laughs> nothing a penny pincher loves more than being challenged yeah, uh, trust me 
<laughs> you, Walter Malley, and Fred Mertz are all the same person, <laughs> just different ages. Walter Malley refused, stating that baseball was an old-fashioned game with old-fashioned traditions, which is what <laughs> a way that an old-fashioned currency value. <laughs> traditions is a, a great way that rich people always keep people who work in line. Mm-hmm. O'Malley decided tradition. to wait. Tradition. You make less than me. Just keep working for no money. Indentured slaves, not a dirty word. It's traditional. <laughs> O'Malley decided to wait the boys out, and unfortunately, that worked. They negotiated for themselves separately for much less than what they uh, originally intended, which sucks cowards in 1960s these are your heroes oh look God. behind the curtain los angeles <laughs> your hero just settled for less money you really gonna take that you really gonna buy his jersey you're saying you respected him for the way he could play baseball <laughs> it's the paycheck baby <laughs> it's all about those money signs <laughs> dollar signs cent signs <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. can we go back to 1966 please <sighs> finally the let's go back so to much better <laughs> Charles Manson. (laughs) Put on your Doris Day nightgown. (laughs) Like Doris Day and night. The Dodgers had another big year in 1966 as they once again won the National League pennant but lost the World Series to the Orioles. See? So it is pennant and then World Series. It is. Yeah, yeah, Confirmation. Confirmation for something we already settled. 40 minutes ago. I had a good feeling that I had it right and you questioned me and I lost all composure. <laughs> I have that effect on people. You're taller than me. I get intimidated. And I always stand on a book whenever I talk to you. <laughs> Greg, where's my book? Oh, oh, I'm sorry, sir. Oh, God. I'm so sorry. Please don't let me not be the co-host anymore. Just a month after that World Series ended against the Orioles, Koufax shocked the world when he announced that he would be retiring at the age of 31. He had chronic... Wow. Ar- I know. He had chronic... Ar- 31. I'm... That. You're a year from retirement. I'm going to shock the world. <laughs> I retired earlier than that. <laughs> we thought you'd been retired this time. Koufax had chronic arthritis in his left arm and he wanted out before his arm was complete trash. Mm. He chose the complete use of his arms over the glory of continuing as an athlete. <laughs> and in a press conference announcing all this, he stated, I haven't regretted one minute of the last 12 years, but I think I would have regretted one year that was too many. God damn it, I respect him. Hmm. He was later voted player of the decade. Good for him. Really? Yeah. That's a vote? Yeah, it's like, like MVP and all that stuff. So they do an official player of the decade vote? It said voted. When I was reading it, they said they voted for him. I didn't vote for it. I would have voted for him. Yeah, whatever. I wouldn't vote for him. You know, whatever. He's your MVP, not my MVP. Listen, I know you're a Drysdale guy because you're aggressive and you want to hit batters. I'm soft-spoken. I'm the J.D. Salinger of baseball. I didn't come up with that. Someone else came up with that. I just remember reading it somewhere. And that makes me the William Faulkner of baseball. <laughs> Drunk and running to the desert. After this point, the Dodgers go through like a bit of a wind drought. No fault to Colfax, but very coincidental. Until the next star comes along 15 years later. Many refer to this era of the Dodgers playing as post-Colfax. On top of PK. that... What? PK. PK. Oh, you played in PK. It was hard. It was a rough time. 1969, Drysdale has to retire due to a torn rotator cuff at the age of 33. My God. They really tore them apart. Well, they dominated the league, so I imagine they must have played like every game. (laughs) Even the other team's games. (laughs) Hey, this is the uh, Montreal Expo. Do you think you can come play a couple games for us? All right. Fine. We'll give you 40 cents. (laughs) 1970, O'Malley steps aside as a president of the ball club and takes the position of the chairman of the board. His son, Peter O'Malley, is named club president in March of that year. O'Malley is keeping in the family. That's mm-hmm. an old saying in baseball. Yeah. And although the Dodgers were making it to postseason games, they were still never dropping below third in the rankings. It was just this time when management was waiting for promising players to step forward. And the Dodgers had many really good players in that early 70s season. They still had Willie Davis, Tommy Davis. They were still batting really well. There was crazy enthusiasm building over a wave of emerging stars. There's Steve Garvey, Dave Lopes, Willie Crawford, Jimmy Wynn, Bill Russell, Don Sutton, Bill Buckner was Mike on the Piazza. team. 
Mike Piazza was still on the team. Why give up one of the best players the sport's ever had, you know? He starts in 1896 as uh, Mike Piazzaberg. <laughs> when he had to re-enter the country through Ellis Island, <laughs> they shortened it to Mike Piazza. It just looked better on the back of a jersey. He's been number one this entire time. Dodger player number one. <laughs> the immortal. And now, taking the field, number infinity sign, Mike Piazza. The Highlander of baseball. <laughs> there can be only one. Like I was saying, Bill Buckner was on the team. Do you know who Bill Buckner was? No. Bill Buckner Buckner was the first baseman for the Red Sox that famously pulled the boner during World Series when oh, he, when he really? was against Mets, the one that the ball went under yeah. him. When it, you know, it's good to have him. It's good to have him on the team. He's really good. My dad's a really big fan yeah. of Bill Buckner. Everyone felt really bad for Could Bill you Buckner. imagine? I mean, that's literally, as a kid, that was my nightmare. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, I saw my face on Bill Buckner's, <laughs> under Bill Buckner's hat for, like, years. Oh, boy. Everybody relying on you. Mm-hmm. And they already kind of hate you. For some reason, the stars have aligned and you're the one that's deciding <laughs> everything. It's, it's so simple. It's just such and a it's the most embarrassing have... way. Yeah. Yep. And it's when everyone needs you the most. And then I turn around and my pants split. <laughs> and on the back of the pants, it says, little squirrel. <laughs> Mommy's little squirrel. Have you seen the footage of that? Because once it goes to a certain length, he just stops going after it. And he just stands there. like, And that's how I feel all the time. Just yeah. standing there like, well, it's painful. It's, yeah. Well, he was great on the Dodgers. <laughs> It only happened three more times. <laughs> so I read a story about one of my dad's favorite players, outfielder Manny Mota, and I had n- never knew about this story, that in May of 1970, he hit a foul ball that killed a 14-year-old boy named Alan Fish who was returning to his seat with hot dogs. <sighs> At Dodger Stadium, the ball was so also f- one of my nightmares. <laughs> the ball was so fast that Fish didn't see it coming, and it struck him on the side of the head. And he was fine at first. They took him to like an aid station. They gave him like two aspirins, which was like the greatest surgery in medicine, exactly. And they sent him back to his seat, and uh. he was fine for a while. And as this, the night went on, he started exhibiting signs of a concussion, so they admitted him to the hospital. And like four days later, he died. Great. So the Dodgers are murderers now. <laughs> That's horrible. I found out also he went to the same middle school as I did. Oh God, it could have been you. It was me. Uh, <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> and I'm after Manny Mota. So, but no, seriously, though, Manny Mota was like crushed after this. Like he never played the same. His yeah. like his 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 rankings dropped after that. Supposedly the this Are the was Dodgers the cursed. There's, there's that, two I, star I, players that had to retire very young. Yeah, one guy kills one. <laughs> that broke the curse, unfortunately. Yeah, that was this was supposedly, as far as I know, the only fatality from an instance like this in baseball. Although in 2002, a girl in Ohio got hit in the head with a puck and died during a hockey game. Yeah, so that's our that's bridge. That's why they have nets now. Oh, really? Behind both goals, they have giant nets. That's a new thing. Yeah, it's after that girl died they put those up you went pre-net games right I went before the water even froze into ice. I was there watching. It's a California thing. You guys don't understand. We don't have much ice here, except in our mojitos. Cowabunga, everybody. <laughs> so another bummer in the club. In 1972, there was another strike between the players and management that lasted for 10 days before they were able to compromise on a $500,000 increase in pension fund payments, which is a victory, I'm guessing, for ball players. So, you know, game on. So the Dodgers had a really strong team. And by 1974, the team had picked it up again. And fans were really getting behind them. 74 was the year they reached the top winning the division and posting 102 victories, which was the most by any Dodger team since 1962. That was 12 years, I think. They took the Pirates in the League Championship Series three games to one, but eventually lost to the Oakland A's Athletics during the final (laughs) games. Thank you. No matter, because the Dodgers were back up, baby. In 1976, the managers from since they were in Brooklyn, the one who brought them from like being the Bad News Bears to a good team, Walter Mm -hmm. Alston, after 23 years, was retiring. Stepping up to the plate, the manager plate, that is, was Tommy Lasorda. (laughs) That's when he comes along. Do you have the manager plate? Yeah, here it is. Let me just blow the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like two of us though. Tommy Lasorda, who before that was a third base coach. At first, some claimed that Lasorda was a little unenthusiastic, but he proves himself over time to be one of the best motivators for the Dodgers, not just for the players, but for the entire city. Funny enough, Frank Sinatra had promised Lasorda he'd sing for opening day as a manager a few years back, and when the day came in 1977, Frank Sinatra sang the national anthem for Lasorda's first game, and Hmm. for America. 
This one's for you, America. <laughs> and Tommy Lasorda. <laughs> Unforgettable. He had to sit right in front Lasorda. of him as he's singing, sang to him. <laughs> I'm going to cry. Oh, Frankie. Oh, Frankie, why? Not in front of everybody. This is my first game. <laughs> and we never respected him since then. So 77 78 was another instance of like all the right players at the right time coming together. In 76, they lost to the Reds, which was a monster of a team at the time. They were referred to as the Big Red Machine, which were led by the incredibly intense Pete Rose and Johnny Bench. I feel like for some reason, the Cincinnati Reds are like always haunting the Dodgers. I think the Reds and the Yankees are always like, they're like the two bullies who won't leave the Dodgers alone. Grow up, guys. (laughs) Come on, I'm really good. It's been 102 (laughs) years. (laughs) The sort of, in 76, made a really bold statement, sort of like Babe Ruth pointing to the the stands that he was going to be able to beat the Red Machine in 77. Boys in blue were going to beat the big Red Machine Mm. to back him on this claim very political. To back him on this bold statement, he had a really great lineup. He had Garvey, Say, Lopes, Marcus Russell. Mar- Marcus Garvey. A very intelligent man. Broke everyone psychologically. They had Dusty Baker. They had Reggie Smith, Jim Brewer. Not the one you're thinking about. Not Goatman? No. I- <laughs> Not Goatman. Is that Jim Brewer? That's Jim Brewer, but not the Jim Brewer we're talking about. It might be. You know, I didn't look it up. How old is Jim Brewer? How old is Mike Piazza? Nobody knows. Jim Brewer is a satyr, so who knows how old he could be. And Don Sutton. Don Sutton was a, a pitcher. It's a really great pitcher. The great motivator that he was, apparently, sort of would get Don Rickles to hang out in the Dodgers dugout. And apparently when he did so, in uniform, he hung out in uniform. He also went out and supposedly he relieved a pitcher from its duty one time. Elias Sosa from the mound. Lasorda wrote about that tale later and didn't mention this bit but Rickles says it happens. It was confirmed from Lasorda that Rickles was a ball boy once or twice. Mm. But Interesting because he always called people a hockey puck. That's funny. The, another bridge. Another bridge. I, I was watching Don Rickles come out and kind of insulting the Dodgers. I'm like, oh, I bet this will be funny and then he just does what Don Rickles does and you know, sometimes I'm like, I'm not in the mood to watch him be mean to people. He would have made me cry. He's still alive. He can still, he make, can me still make He can still make me cry. But then I'll always have that scene in, but, in Casino where he gets beat with a phone. What? There's no crying in baseball. Oh my god, you're right. That's going to be a $4,000 fine. <laughs> each tier. So sure enough, Dodgers win pennants back-to-back. 77-78 defeating the Phillies at the league championship games but losing to them damn Yankees in a World Series. Good God. But during all of this they were breaking records. They made history with four members of the same team hit 30 or more home runs. The quartet for this was Garvey with 33, Smith with 32, Say with 30, and Baker with 30. Don Sutton also had a really great decade winning 166 games including 21 victories in 1976 which is great. They weren't world champions but they also weren't a bunch of bums anymore. (laughs) Probably, I don't know, all that clean air. So the spectacular team of the late 70s moves into the 80s. Walter O'Malley dies in 1979, and ownership of the team is inherited to his son, Peter, who is now the club president. The Dodgers finished third that year in the runnings. So now we have the Dodgers of the 80s, and they could be summed up basically by one player who debuted almost accidentally. Mike Piazza. Mike Piazza. <laughs> you know, they had him for a long time, and they just keep rediscovering him. They just keep every once in a while. Reintroducing. <laughs> he has the longest trading card I've ever seen because he's been playing for so long. It's a trading pamphlet. <laughs> The only thing is different is like mutton chops to sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) Michael Piazza, a new player, debuted pretty much accidentally, or at least not intentionally, on opening day of 1981. The intended pitcher, Jerry Royce, sprained his ankle while jogging a few days before the game, couldn't play. The other starting pitcher, Burt Hooten, had an ingrown toenail, which... (laughs) could keep you from playing. But there was a lot of faith in this 20-year-old pitcher from Mexico. Nobody in the stands had ever heard of Fernando Valenzuela when he stepped on the mound to pitch. They couldn't even say his name. He was like a chubby Mexican kid with like long hair who calmly walked out there like he was about to pitch for the Mexican League. And people were getting nervous. Because they thought he was going to steal their wallet. <laughs> uh, he makes me nervous. I don't know why. He has a sweetheart face. I just want to pinch his cheeks when I see him. Especially that watching footage of the first game is like, he looks like I would be his friend. He's just, <laughs> don't mind me. I'm just going to... By the end of the first game, in which he pitched a no 
no-hitter. Complete shutout of the Astros. That was the beginning of a decade of Dodger history known as Fernando Mania. The Fernando Nation has spoken. And it wasn't just in Los Angeles. Like, it was all across this fine country. And it was across Mexico, which is another fine country. And even had rumblings in Canada, which is another country. Um, he not only threw with incredible speed, but his like body movements were a little loose, so the batter had no indication of where the ball was going to go. He also threw a screwball, which was, I don't know if it's like a novelty pitch, but it was not common. People didn't know how to hit at a screwball. Hitting a screwball is a joke, which is going to lead me to say something about Desi Arnaz, but I won't. <laughs> I can see why people don't like us, and I get it. Yeah. I just, I'm ashamed of myself, really, but I'm not going to stop because I don't know how to stop. We can't change who we are, people. And if you don't like it, keep listening. <laughs> see how bad we get. Watch two boys self-destruct. <laughs> Under the weight of their own ill humor. Many Mexican and Mexican-Americans in California had and still had a very strong pride for Valenzuela because Los Angeles is a Mexican city, only it's owned by the United States. And to have such a fantastic player whose English was also not very strong, to have that be your guy, it must have felt really great. You can get behind this guy there weren't like a lot of mexican heroes revered in america and here's this like nonchalant pitcher striking everybody i was really neat many say that latino support for the dodgers which i'm not sure if you're aware is very strong <laughs> many say it starts with valenzuela or at least like fernando mania valenzuela was the first player to win the cy young award and the rookie of the year in the same season in 1981 the team had incredible momentum not just from their fans but also they had like a really excellent team building this momentum too besides valenzuela you had mike many piazza. of it what mike piazza you had <laughs> Mike Piazza split into like an amoeba into two whole Mike Piazzas. You had the heavy hitters still from 77-78. Pedro Guerrero, Reggie Smith still. You had Rick Monday. Once again, the Dodgers and the Yankees square off at the World Series. They go six games. And let me tell you, brother, the Dodgers win. Game six, 9-2, becoming world champions in 1981. Boy, boy, are they good. Boy, <laughs> boy are they good. My goodness. What a team. 1985, Valenzuela set a major league record for having the most consecutive innings at the start of a season without allowing it an earned run. He pulled off 41 of those, which is incredible, before the Padres ended his winning streak. Funny that the Padres bring down the uh, yeah, look uh, at locals that. once again. Yeah, look at that. Yeah, interesting. History repeats itself, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, guys? History Mike Piazza's itself. <laughs> Padre Mike Piazza. <laughs> Padre Piazza. <laughs> Padre Piazza, they call him. So come 1988, which some call the most memorable of the decade, which... I would agree because I was born that year. Oh, God. Can my listeners hear me roll my eyes? I'm going to try again. <laughs> my eyes are very dry because I'm so tired. The 1988 World Series season featured what many people call one of the greatest sports moments in Los Angeles history. One of the greatest moments of World Series history happens in Game 1 World Series against the Oakland Athletics, the A's, if you will. So the Dodgers are down 4-3 to three in the ninth inning. Kirk Gibson, who couldn't start because of a knee and hamstring injury, was taking batting practice swings. And as Bob Costas puts it in that Ken Burns baseball series, was agonizing after every swing. I don't know if you know this. This isn't a hockey thing, but you need your feet to swing a bat. How? chips uh, grab on with all four <laughs> but they put gibson in the game anyways they put him up to bat in the ninth inning which i don't know if you know is the last inning on bottom f- of the ninth okay yeah yeah mike piazza right. is on mike davis is on first and it's it's just not looking good uh, gibson is an obvious pain davis manages to still second base but gibson is now at the count three two three balls two strikes bottom of the ninth a's ahead by single run high drama next pitch swing crack home run. Kirk Gibson makes the hit only screen the crack was his spine. <laughs> <laughs> he never got up again. <laughs> he couldn't even run around the bases. <laughs> Basically, yeah, he hit the home run and then he limped all the way across oh, the base. But his, but his face is priceless. He was so happy. <laughs> Dugout explodes. Everyone's happy. Camera's shaking and he's just so excited but he's also like hobbling. The camera the was shaking. The camera's happy about this too? The camera was, woo, woo, woo. The, was our processing. <laughs> <laughs> he's like hobbling around but he, you know, good for Kirk Gibson. He makes like a, a hit only a screenwriter can come up with. <laughs> <laughs> the Dodgers win 4-5, first game of the World Series. But due to his injury, though, that was the last 
play Gibson would do in uh, that whole World Series. But it was enough. It created enough momentum that would carry them for the rest of the games. And they, they won? They won. They won huh. uh, after five games. 1988 is also a big year for hockey in L.A. Uh, I'll get to that. L.A. sports, man. Again, I was born. <laughs> the greatest thing to happen to all sports in this city. <laughs> Old RBI. But it wasn't just Gibson's homer. It wasn't just Fernando Mania that created the boys and blues through the 80s. Another great player was a pitcher, Oral Hershiser. The Bulldog, as they called him. <laughs> Hershiser was a phenomenal pitcher, a very intense man who wanted to quit baseball in the minor league, but was continually pushed back into it by his father. Constantly fought with management to stay in games when they wanted him to step down. He is remembered for surpassing Drysdale's record of 58 consecutive scoreless innings. Mike Sosha was a great catcher for the team, paired well with Valenzuela. Now there's a player I have to talk about. Mike Piazza. Mike Piazza. And boy, what a hitter. And a catcher. <laughs> a first baseman, a second baseman, a third baseman. All the outfield. That and also boy. the ball. <laughs> he was a great audience member. He's a great third baseman coach. <laughs> and announcer. And Megatron. He also turned a hell of a scoreboard. Mike Piazza. <laughs> Serve you your Dodger dog. Get you a beer. <laughs> Buy peanuts from him. Park your car. Buy a ticket. Talk to Mike Piazza. <laughs> Fold down his knees. Sit on him. He's your seat. <laughs> Careful. You're stepping on Mike Piazza. <laughs> That's all right. He doesn't mind. He's Mike Piazza. <laughs> There's a second baseman there in this era, late 80s. His name is Steve Sachs. Do you know what a yip is? A yip. A yip. A yip is an inexplicable loss of a motor skill, like a mental thing. I don't know what that is. It's a inex- I just had a yip if that's the case. <laughs> There's something called the Steve Sachs syndrome. Around 1983, Steve Sachs became incapable of throwing the ball to first base. That's like, strange that he got his own disease. <laughs> Lou Gehrig has his own. Only to baseball players. <laughs> <laughs> like, it'd go anywhere but first base. In all the 1983 season, he made 30 errors. He could throw it to third base, fine, but he could not throw it to first base. It was a complete mental thing. During a no-hitter Valenzuela once remarked, I don't care what happens, just don't hit it to Steve Sachs. <laughs> he was supposedly cured of this in 1989, played for like a couple years after that. Yep, Steve Sachs syndrome, couldn't throw it to first base. That's so weird. It's That's so such weird. a specific thing. What's weird is like, there's some names that you just know. I knew Oral Hershiser before I knew anything about him. I knew Mike Sosha. I also knew Steve Sachs and I thought he was a great player. <laughs> and I like went to the people I would talk to about this stuff who gave me like, not just stats, but like, give me a story about this player. It's like, let's hear a great Steve Sachs story. And everyone started laughing like there are none. But after <laughs> this after winning the world series in 1988 they haven't been able to pull it off since to this day really september 2015 they haven't been able to win the world series drought drought there's drought <laughs> what's weird is like the dodgers of the 90s were my team like that's the roster i remember fun that's when i was like followed mm-hmm. every single game that was like the only time i did that i was like so you're playing. familiar with mike piazza actually I, I am that's why we get along so well remember our first conversation yeah hey nice mike piazza shirt <laughs> Hey, are those Mike Piazza brand pants? Piazza pantaloonsas? Are you using your Piazza spatula? <laughs> I remember this team being like the titans of baseball. Like, I remember thinking, like, these are the greatest players I've ever seen. <laughs> but reading through, like, the history of this era and, like, glancing at stands, it was a very rocky era. I'm glad that we both grew up with loving loser teams. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly speaks to our personality. Yeah. Everyone in L.A. around our ages, if they grew up liking sports remotely in town, no, that's not true, because Lakers fans, yeah, all the Lakers fans now are wolves of Wall Street. Street and that sort of thing. And look at us, the Dodger and Kings fans are recording a podcast about history. Were you wearing your Kings hat when you were doing? Because I wear my Dodgers hat when I did all the research. So my team growing up, Eric Carroll's, Raul Montesi, Hideo Nomo, Ramon Martinez, Dale Strawberry, Brett Butler, and... Uh, Steve Yips. And... Uh, I don't know, no one's coming to me. And... Uh, Sandy Koufax came back. And... Oh, Jackie Robinson's back from the grave. He was still alive at the time. And, oh, what player has been alive forever? I just don't know. I think Jackie Robinson was dead at this point. And Mike Piazza! 
Oh no, he summoned Mike Piazza. Hey, boys. Somebody want to hit a home run? Mike Piazza, can you sign my Kings jersey? Well, no. That's the only thing that can drive me to the grave. Mike Piazza, can you sign my Mike Piazza trading novel? Gotta go. I gotta deliver presents to kids on Christmas. That's right. Mike Piazza. I'm also Santa Claus. I hate Mike Piazza. See you later, Mike. Roll <laughs> strawberry. In 1991, they finished second in the league, but posted a club record of 99 losses on a plummet to the last place in 92. By 93, they managed to struggle to third place and held a third and a half place in 94. Why was it a half? Because yet another player strike in 94 halted baseball, all of baseball. The season was canceled and didn't resume until 1995. The 94 strike really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Many people call it like the worst, most embarrassing moment that has ever happened to Major League Baseball. It started over the owners wanting to put a salary cap for the players, which of course upset the players who were putting their bodies through hell to win these games. Through the 70s and 80s, the players were constantly fighting for pay raises and to be released from their clauses, which tied them contractually to a team. They wanted to be their own agents on their own terms and manage their own careers. In 85, the team owners secretly agreed to not sign one another's players. Of course, this conspiracy was uncovered and the players' union sued and won $280 million. Since then, the owners have been trying to find a reasonable salary for the players since they were asking for so much. And on both sides, they couldn't agree to anything really, so the season was shut down. Even in December of 94, President Bill Clinton tried to end the baseball strike and couldn't. The president couldn't end it. I hereby declare play ball. <laughs> a majority of the team owners voted to put out replacement players for teams that eventually their owners were issued an injunction for locking the players out. So in April of 95, the games resumed, but the damage was already done at this point. Baseball fans were understandably upset over all this. Many put it, it was like watching millionaires fight billionaires. <laughs> like athletes make s- such an exceeding amount of money. Names of two minor league baseball teams <laughs> in LA. The common baseball fan couldn't relate to this mm. like they're having like a gold fight all of this seems so lavish and attendance was low for that entire season the Dodgers returned with what I mentioned was a really great team they set a record mid-decade with five consecutive National League rookies that year starting with Caros the immortal Piazza Montesi Nomo and Hollinsworth Caros and Piazza I even I remember were a really great team together as first baseman and catcher but their ability to hit was where their real value was Caros cranked like 20 home runs as a rookie in 92 and Piazza as a rookie hit 35 home runs in 1993 along with 112 RBIs. Raul Mondesi also had a really great career with the Dodgers. He stole 30 bases and made 30 home runs under his belt during the 90s. In 1994, we introduced the first South Korean ball player to pitch in the major leagues, Chan Ho Park. In 96, Tommy Lasorda retired as Dodgers manager, much to the dismay of the fans. He was pretty much forced to retire because of like some medical issues, but he continued on as a great motivational speaker for corporations and agencies. He held his position as manager for like 20 seasons. After him, former Dodger Bill Russell stepped in as a manager for a short time. Some say Lasorda railroaded him into it. Bill Russell was tell you something about the railroad. Bill Russell was also married to like Walter O'Malley's niece or something. Mm-mm. In 1998, the O'Malley family who owned the Dodgers since 1950 sold the team to the Fox Group. And I kept reading that sentence in passing, thinking that it Rupert was Murdoch. It took me a while to like get that, but yeah, he, they sold to the Fox Network, cartoonishly villainous <laughs> Rupert Murdoch. They paid 311 million dollars. And at this time, if you think about it, in TV sports, Disney had its fangs in the Anaheim Angels and the cool. Ducks and the Ducks. Who will both of them will never get an episode. <laughs> 
out of my goddamn dead body. <laughs> Orange County will never be anything. And Time Warner owned the, the Atlanta Braves. Now TBS. They also own Conan now, which big hugs for Conan. Now, I'm not sure that Murdoch and the Fox were, were too keen on like America's pastime, but I think that they were interested and they obsessed with America's other pastime. Cutthroat capitalism! <laughs> After Fox Room okay. gets in, they began firing men who spent like many, many successful decades in the Dodgers organization. Just three months into this like new marriage. There's a string of managers that came in and out during this period. None too memorable. A lot of them were kind of shoddy. At the late 90s, early 2000s, really, really rocking the team on the field and in the office. The boys in blue couldn't manage to make it to a single postseason game. <laughs> Hanging around like second or third in their division, winning 90 games only once during this period. Attendance was really, really low and it was slipping in the first year under Murdoch. Over their time together, grew only like less than 2% in comparison to O'Malley's last six years where they gained 34% in attendance. After six years, Fox dumped the Dodgers onto Frank McCourt in 1994. He was from Boston. He tried to buy the Boston Red Sox and when he failed, he came after the Dodgers. He bought the Dodgers for $430 million. <laughs> the team of the 2000s was really strong. The thing was that they didn't have like a blast of talent. Like they were players who were improving steadily. Like you were watching these guys grow. Fun to watch. Yeah. You know what I love? A slow simmer. Managing duties were taken up by a guy named Jim Tracy and new talent, like I said, was emerging. Gary Sheffield, Sean Green, Eric Karras was still around. They were all leading in home runs mid-decade. Karras became the all-time leader from the Dodgers with 221 home runs. Sean Green became the fifth left-hand, fifth Beto. You know, he kind of couldn't keep up pace-wise, but he understand what they were going for, like, all together as a group. Are we still talking about the Beatles? Yeah, we're still talking about the Beatles. No, he conceptually got the Dodgers. <laughs> I see what you guys are doing, but I think it could use a little bit more rock and roll. I just imagine Sean Green walking up to the plate holding Paul's bass. <laughs> Immediately getting beat on the head. Oh, I see what he's doing. Green became the fifth left-hander in the Major League history to hit at least 49 home runs in a season, and also he hit 40 or more home runs in back-to-back seasons. At this time, we're starting to notice players like Andre Baltry, James Loney, Paul LaDuca. In 2004, the Dodgers ranked up 93 wins and got themselves the National League West division title, which they couldn't accomplish in nine years. But just around the corner, the 2005 season was one of their worst seasons since 1992. In 2005, they were 71-91, mostly due to injuries, but they're also like a real strong lack of spirit. In 2008, Joe Torre of the Yankees fame stepped in as manager. No. And, uh, no, no, the enemy. He stepped in as manager and led the team to uh, like a turnaround of success, picking up a loss of seven games to just fall behind two in the end, which is pretty good. Him, along with another former Yankee, Dom Mattingly, the both of them started rallying behind the Dodgers and pushing them forward. With Mattingly, they introduced the next big wave of Dodger fandom with Slugger Manny Ramirez. I don't know if you remember the hats with dreads hanging down. Oh, yeah. Remember that era? They also had Casey Blake, who together made a really strong lineup that was hard to compete with. They were looking as promising as the 77-78 team and were posting the best record in the league, reaching the postseason for the third time in four years, which hadn't happened since 63-66. Around that decade, you had players like Chad Billingsley and Clayton Kershaw began to emerge as strong players, Andre Ethier, Jonathan Broxton. But after a disappointing 2010 season in which they finished fourth, Joe Torre stepped aside as manager and put Mattingly in position. I've heard some people say that they want they wished that they had hired in-house for a manager. There's so many like old players that could have got like uh, Dusty Baker Mike or Piazza. Mike, Mike Piazza, manager Mike Piazza to put himself at the pitcher and the catcher. <laughs> Under Mattingly, you know, nobody really has a complaint other than that. With him at the helm, they create a really great lineup, but still no World Series since 88. 2011 comes along. The Dodgers went through a ringer when Frank McCourt and his wife were getting a divorce and in the middle of their dispute was the ownership of the Los Angeles oh, Dodgers. Yeah, I remember, remember that? that? Yeah. During this... Magic Johnson. Uh, Magic Johnson came and saved the day basically with the Guggenheim Baseball Management Group who bought the team for like $2 billion <laughs> before Magic Johnson came and saved the day. The Dodgers were placed in bankruptcy production. <laughs> I remember like that period being so weird because before he came along people were like, what's going to happen? What, what are we going to do? They put they filed oh, for oh. bankruptcy protection and then like... Is this going to solve itself by magic? <laughs> Who's going to save the day? 
Wait, Mike Piazza? And then once <laughs> Not a more old ghoul? He hasn't seen a dollar bill since 1971. And then, like, yeah, Magic Johnson came along, and everyone's like, oh, well, all right. One Dodger Dog, please. <laughs> so last couple years of the gameplay has been really steady with what I consider to be a great team. Clayton Kershaw, Andrew Ethier, Justin Turner, Matt Kemp. Kershaw and Kemp have made a great hitting pitching team. Not as strong as Mike Piazza, though. I mean, we'll never have anything like Mike. Mike Piazza's like the title. It's like a tsunami. And what's he hitting? The town of Mike Piazza. <laughs> Piazza Villa. <laughs> Around this time, the latest wave of insane Dodger fandom hit with Yasale Puig emerged as a ferocious young batter. We're going through a big Puig thing right now, which is fun. Out of nowhere, like, it's like he hit at one game and people were like well he's the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life <laughs> they did a little better I thought it was a Puig that's no, Puig like league I, uh, I got schooled major league I thought it was league. Luig like major Luig oh, baseball yeah. <laughs> They did a little better in 2014, a steady incline. They won the National League West Division's title for the second consecutive year. We're seeing new talent making a big name for themselves. Josh Beckett threw a no-hitter. Adrian Gonzalez led the league in RBIs with 116 next to you, old RBI. Mm-hmm. Uh, my record still stands. Gonzalez tied with Matt Kemp for the club home That's run. you! Oh my god, I gotta get to Dodger Stadium. He tied with Matt Kemp for the club home run lead with 25 homers. As of today, there's a shortstop, number 12. Shortstop, number 12! <laughs> Corey Seager. This is the third consecutive year we've made the postseason, and Seager has barely started playing, but there's a lot of confidence in him. He made his first career home run earlier this month, and closer to the time of this recording, has hit two home runs against the Pirates in like one game. Sadly, though, it was announced recently that Vince Scully's last year as the voice of Los Angeles Dodgers mm. is going to be this year. He's now that means here. something to yeah. me. Yeah, <laughs> he's 87. <laughs> don't forget. It's such a sad thing because he really, like, they, we, you know, I don't know if you are listening from Los Angeles, we refer to him as the voice of the summer, and it's kind of true. Like, he has like a definitive voice. Special shout outs to some uns Sung heroes i'm gonna finally clear up the organist mike piazza mike the <laughs> organist mike piazza the ladies playing the organ for the games the first one was Laz gooding the second one was helen down the current one being nancy b heffley who was the you could follow her on twitter <laughs> nancy certainly b heffley uh, nancy b like aunt b mm-hmm. nancy b e a at yeah. nancy b longtime dodger stadium p announcer eric smith who uh, was also announcer for the clippers and the usc games of the call same stepped down in april of this year and is being replaced by todd leitz before smith there was john ramsey who held the position for a very long time announcing for the Raiders and the Rams as well as the Kings and the Lakers and he died unfortunately in 1990 from complications what is his diabetes. name again? John Ramsey I've mentioned that I live like very close to Dodger Stadium I spent most of my life around there when I was like a... Greg don't give him too much information oh, I don't want you to know where I live I saw Ramon Martinez once at the old Pioneer Market which is Sunset and Echo Park where the Walgreens is now I had no idea who he was and my uncle's like you, you shake his hand right now <laughs> my dad has seen like Andre Ethier walking down the street and been like you better bat better next time <laughs> living close to the stadium you kind of feel when Dodger enthusiasm is waning like they're like Dodger fans are finicky but you, you get such a strong sense when no one cares about our bums and they are our bums now we grew up <laughs> with them but these last few years there is such an intense and unbreakable sense of community and I also credit a lot of that with the explosion of social media because now we have new ways of expressing our love for the team now we can all take pictures of ourselves at the stadium we post our favorite things like it's we can leave racist comments in the message boards who, who, whatever any race whatsoever I don't care and it's really cool because not only they like the Dodgers they like Vince Scully like they like you get to know the name of the organist you, you like you get to know the name of the people who clean the field now like it's a really neat thing that's going on now i'm going to leave the listeners with an inside secret if you want to see the field in the stadium on a non-game day drive up to the gate on park drive and say you want to buy something from dodger gift shop which is usually open off season and you go up there and hang out and check out the seats take a look take a couple pictures send them to us send us your best trespassing photos yeah yeah and get as low as you can before someone stops you and if you can, leave a little stick of dynamite <laughs> right under third base. And an L.A. Meekly sticker on home plate. <laughs> Print out your own L.A. Meekly sticker. Leave one on every single seat. That's all she wrote. 
She being baseball. <laughs> it's a very feminine sport because it's understanding and not mean to anybody. So baseball season is over now, uh, in my mind. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Transition into a new sport starting this season, hockey. What's hockey? Hockey. The great American pastime. <laughs> but the question remains, who's on first? <laughs> Call back. L.A. has a surprisingly long hockey history that goes back much further <gasps> than... Oh, surprise. That's good acting. Thank you. It goes back much further than the Kings winning the Stanley Cup in 2014, mm-hmm. even more further what? than when they won it in 2012, if you can Ooh, believe it. I, no, this is ancient history. To give meaning to what it meant to have ice hockey in L.A., we've got to start at the beginning. Oh, sleepy Pueblo town. The exact origins of hockey in North America are not easy to place, but in the late 1870s, there were known to be organizations in Quebec City, Kingston, Montreal, and Halifax. So various amateur teams popped up all around Canada, but then in 1893, Canada's Governor General, Lord Stanley of Preston, offered a silver cup that he bought for about $50 in today's money. (laughs) American money, mind you. Not the Canadian loony or whatever. Oh, no, (laughs) yes. Loony. It's solidi- Three acorns. It solidified maple syrup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Here's a, a stick of honey. A stick of honey <laughs> tasting much sweeter than baseball. <laughs> so he got this uh, very, his, this cheap cup to be presented to the best team in Canada. So this led to a mess of these various amateur teams playing for this cup. Meanwhile, down south in the United States, a dentist from Michigan named Jack Gibson got the idea that people would like to see people that were actually being motivated by money to play hockey. Motivated by money where are we even living Canada Canadian cutthroat capitalists it's not Canada it's Michigan Michigan might as well be Canada except for 8 Mile all of Michigan (laughs) should be in Canada this guy Jack Gibson in 1904 he formed the International Hockey League this was North America's first pro league for hockey unfortunately it didn't last very long because it was just in weird small towns along the US Canada border isn't it still Hmm, that's funny (laughs) that's funny I sit here and listen to you go on for an hour about the Dodgers. <laughs> about RBIs or whatever. Something about ribs. <laughs> Even though this league failed, it got the idea of professional leagues going. So a mix of amateur and professional leagues started to pop up in the form of leagues like the Federal Amateur Hockey League, the Maritime Professional Hockey League, the Western Canadian Hockey League, the Eastern Canada Hockey Association, and the Canadian Hockey Association, oh which started in 1909 with teams in Ottawa, Quebec, and Montreal. This is another episode where all the names of the leagues are going to get very confusing. Oh, okay, good, 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 good. good. I, I brought a notebook. <laughs> that same year, your Mike Piazza notebook. Oh, that's, that's good. <laughs> Signed by Mike Piazza, and all the font comes out as Mike Piazza. <laughs> His handwriting. His handwriting, yeah. So that same year, the most important of the pro leagues started, the National Hockey Association, okay. or the NHA, with teams in Montreal, Renfrew, Cobalt, and Haleybury. <sighs> I know, Canadian towns. (laughs) We know they're stupid, but we got to tolerate them for the sake of getting to Los Angeles. (laughs) So the next year, the Canadian Hockey League folded, and two of their teams joined up with the NHA, and the NHA began to assume a position as being the preeminent league in Eastern Canada. They were even the league responsible for establishing a lot of the now standard rules and customs of hockey. In 1910, they changed the game from having two 30-minute halves Mm -hmm. into three 20-minute 
periods so that now instead of people only having one chance during a game to go to the concession stands, they now had two. And there were no water fountains because <laughs> they needed to get the ice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, no, there were water fountains, but only icicles shot out. <laughs> What's a hoggy concession snack? Like a like a waffle or like what are we talking about? You get a whole head of a moose. Filled with maple syrup. <laughs> and a tiny spoon to consume it. <laughs> Some other changes they made, there were the standard six positions on the ice, mm-hmm. which if you don't know hockey, there's the goalie, two defensemen, a center, a left wing, and a right wing. But in 1911, in an attempt to speed up the game, they eliminated what used to be a seventh skater on the ice called the Rover, Ooh. which would just do whatever he wanted, apparently. You didn't have to catch the Quidditch thing? Yeah. The seek- What is it? The, the seeker? seeker? It can't be the, seek- you, you, be the Seeker. You read the books. I just know the movies. The Voldemort. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah, it <gasps> the position that should not be named. Meanwhile, out on the western frontier of Canada, two brothers named Frank and Lester Patrick started up a pro league called the Pacific Coast Hockey Association oh. in 1911 with teams in New Westminster, mm-hmm. Vancouver, and Victoria. This league, it soon unified the sprawl of teams that were playing in western Canada and started to grow new teams as well. Then in 1913, an agreement was made between the Pacific Coast Hockey Association and the NHA on the east that the top team from these two leagues would play each other for the Stanley Cup. Okay. This agreement worked for a while, and in 1917, the Seattle Metropolitans Ooh. of the Pacific Coast Hockey Association became the first American team to win the Stanley Cup. That same year, however, the NHA was on hard times as one of the team owners by the name of Livingstone. Oh. He was causing more trouble than the other owners were willing to deal with, so they had a secret meeting of the owners without this Livingstone, and on November 26, 1917, these rogue owners branched off from the National Hockey Association Mm -hmm. and formed the National Hockey League. Okay. NHL. (gasps) Challenge everything. (laughs) So the NHL consisted of five teams, the Montreal Canadiens, the Montreal Wanderers. Okay, that's a cool name. The Ottawa Senators. The Toronto Arenas, later to be the St. Patrick's. Mm -hmm. And then in 1926, finally became the Maple Leafs and the Quebec Bulldogs. Oh yeah, they're gonna bark. (laughs) Their bark is worse than their puck. (laughs) So the NHL, it didn't get off to a very promising start. The Quebec Bulldogs sat out the first season because they were afraid they didn't have enough money to make it through the entire season. They were wrong. They didn't have enough money to make it through the first two seasons. (laughs) They ended up sitting out the first two NHL seasons. Then in 1918, the arena of the Montreal Wanderers burned down, so they just quit. So now the the NHL only had three teams in it. Oh my God, fire purifies all. (laughs) Even in Canada, eh? (laughs) So things got even more confusing when in 1921, the Western Canada Hockey League formed creating a third league oh that was boy. now playing for the Stanley Cup. Uh-huh. Then in 1924, the Vancouver Maroons of the Pacific Coast Hockey Association folded, so the remaining two teams in that league joined into the Western Canada Hockey League, which now got renamed the Western Hockey League. Okay. Then in 1926, that league failed. <laughs> and two years later, the not confusingly named at all Pacific Coast Hockey League formed. Oh. The problem was Western Canada was not as populated as the East at the time, so the NHL was a vastly more popular league and the little leagues in the West just kind of faded away for the most part. The last non-NHL team to win the Stanley Cup was the Victoria Cougars in 1925. But the NHL kept growing and also shrinking throughout the 20s. A now forgotten team in Hamilton was added. In Mm -hmm. 1924, the Montreal Maroons were added and the first American NHL 
NHL team, the Boston Bruins. So this led to the first NHL game in America, December 1st, 1924, Boston versus the Maroons. Boston won, 2-1, to one, go America, down with Canada. <laughs> War of 1812. <laughs> in 1925, a team called the Pittsburgh Pirates were formed. Woo! But they quickly converted to baseball because it was a much cooler sport. <laughs> so then in 1926, the New York Rangers were created along with the Detroit Cougars, who later became the Falcons and finally the Red Wings in 1932. Oh, and now they're called the Detroit M&Ms. <laughs> Marshall Mathers. I get it. Yeah. Slim Shady. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have a question. No, no, no. Is, it, is it the real Slim Shady? Well, he's standing up, isn't he? <laughs> he's on two legs, isn't he? <laughs> so then also that year, the Chicago Blackhawks formed, okay. and now the NHL had 10 teams. So cool. things finally look like they're stabilizing. The first NHL final between two American teams took place in 1929 between Boston and New York. Uh-huh. A second team even opened up in New York called the Americans. That's how well the sport was doing. Then the <laughs> depression hit. Oh, no. And the Americans took a hit. Teams had to scramble to survive. The Pirates moved to Philadelphia and became the Quakers, okay. then folded. No, Ottawa, like mo- Quakers. Ottawa moved to St. Louis, then folded. Oh, the Montreal Maroons stayed where they were, then folded. The New York Americans, they folded. Once the Depression was done wreaking its havoc, all that was left were six teams. Montreal Canadiens, Toronto Maple Leafs, Boston Bruins, Chicago Blackhawks, Detroit Red Wings, the Wed Wings, and the New York Wangers. (laughs) So these six teams, they're still around. They're referred to as the original six. Okay. So that's a big thing in the NHL, the original six. They make a big deal about it, even though they weren't all original. These are the teams that were kind of arbitrarily granted this mythical status. Well, they survived the Depression. Yeah, not many did. They became legends as the original teams win the league was stabilized and ready to move forward. So all six of these teams still, as I said, they still yeah. did. The league stayed with only these six teams for several decades until an expansion took place, which is where LA comes into the NHL picture. Okay. While all this was going on in the glamorous East Coast and in humble Canada, LA was having a sort of hockey uprising of its own. In order for hockey to be played, you gotta have ice, ice, Baby, it's not something LA is known for unless you're referring to what this town's residents' hearts are as cold as. <laughs> they could only play in those instances where it snowed in LA. Yeah, they had one day to practice <laughs> in the NHL. So that all changed February 10th, 1925, when the first ice rink in all of Southern California opened at Melrose in Vermont called the Palais de Glace. Wow, really? Yeah. It could fit 4,500 people inside, and it had a grand opening with a huge gala that was cut short when 200 kids who couldn't get in opened up the valve of ammonia that was. Oh keeping the ice frozen and everyone had to evacuate. (laughs) Well, if we can't have it. (laughs) Melrose and Vermont, that's by LACC, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's why it still smells like ammonia. (laughs) Is that what it is? Okay. There were actually several grand opening parties for this place and the guests at one of these parties were the soon-to-be doomed Doheny family. Mm. Mm -hmm. It was here that the city's first hockey game was played February 23rd, 1925 between the Los Angeles Athletic Club and the LA Monarchs. The Athletic Club one three to one. These two teams were part of an organization called the California Amateur Hockey Association, which had formed in January of 1925. Consisted of three teams, who I just mentioned, and a third called the Los Angeles Athletics. So there's <laughs> two teams called the Athletics. You mean the A's? <laughs> just a year later, it turned into the California Hockey League, and then eventually the Commercial Hockey League. Oh, right. I love un- that name. Until the Palais de Glace burned down in <laughs> September 1934. Fire purifies all. Even ice. <laughs> Gotta boil it. So I hear rumors of an even earlier, more recreational hockey game being played on February 1st, 1917 uh-huh. at a place called the Ice Palace, Okay. which was at 1041 North Broadway, just down the hill from Dodger Stadium. Oh, really? Okay. 
between a team also called the Los Angeles Athletic Club and the University Club. I've heard a few sources talking about this, but then others don't even recognize it, so I'm not really sure, but... The information's yours. Do what you will with it. Go tell your friends and look like a fool. Anyway, in 1928, a place called the Glacier Palace opened at 613 North Van Ness, right at Raleigh Studios. And with it, the California Professional Hockey League came to town with six teams in LA. The Hollywood Millionaires, the Los Angeles Millionaires, the Hollywood Stars, not to be confused with those Hollywood Stars, the The Los Angeles Angels, not to be confused with those Los Angeles Angels, the Los Angeles Maroons, and the Los Angeles Richfields, which I think was the name of one of the minor league baseball Were teams. Were they trying to merge with like, like a, a team will have one of each sport? Yeah. <laughs> like, the Angels are playing here. <laughs> so then the depression hit. Of course. This whole league folded in 1933. Jesus. Meanwhile, the Glacier Palace got renamed the Polar Palace on September 23rd, 1934 and brought in a new league called the Intercity Ice Hockey League of which not much is known. The rink was later renamed the Winter Garden years nice. later and hosted various amateur and college hockey teams until it too burned down mm. on May 16, 1963. Nice. Uh, burned down so much as melted. <laughs> Everything burned down at some point. Did well, they like were all ever- made of wood. They were like basically barns where instead of hay, it was frozen hay. Frozen hay, yeah. And horses would eat it still. Yeah. So a third interesting rink in LA was called the Tropical Ice Gardens, which opened November 28, 1938 on the southwest corner of Weyburn and Gailey in Westwood oh, across yeah. from O'Hara's, oh. where the coffee bean now is. It was an outdoor ice rink okay. and was the only year round outdoor ice rink in the world. What? Really? Yeah, year round. Yeah, I mean, there yeah. was... Yeah, I, I know what you mean, yeah. That's that like all it. year, around the whole year. In Westwood. Like one revolution around the sun. <laughs> and yeah, in Westwood, 10,000 spectators could fit in it, but it was torn down in 1949 for UCLA expansion, whatever mm. that, they needed coffee. Some NHL teams even came out here every once in a while for some exhibition games. Mm-hmm. April 1926, the now defunct New York Americans came to play a series of games against the best of LA team. 1927, the Chicago Blackhawks and Pittsburgh Pirates came to play some local teams and then each other at the Winter Garden before it melted. The Boston Bruins at one time came out here. September 20th, 1943, the Montreal Canadiens played a war relief charity game at the Tropical Ice Gardens. One point of local pride comes out of the Paramount Iceland in Paramount, which opened in 1949. Its owner, Frank Zamboni mm-hmm. invented the Frank. He invented the Zamboni in Paramount. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So the Paramount Iceland is still fully operational. It's armed and fully operational. <laughs> the biggest of these minor teams in LA was probably the LA Monarchs, not the one we talked about before, yeah. of the Pacific Coast Hockey League that played from 1944 to 1950 at the Pan Pacific Auditorium right next to Gilmore Fields, yes. where all of those things were going on. That's weird. They even won the PCHL title in 1947. The owner of the Pan Pacific Auditorium tried to lobby to get an NHL team of his own to play there, but traveling west at the time was still too cumbersome and expensive, so it just didn't work out. There was also a team at the Pan Pacific called the Hollywood Wolves that were actually a farm team for the Toronto Maple Leafs, but they folded in 1948. Then the Monarchs folded in 1950 (laughs) when every other team in their division folded, so they had to by default. God. I'm so happy we have hockey now because like it had no chance to survive. Well, it's so hot. (laughs) There were various small teams and various small leagues after this, like the Pasadena Panthers, the Los Angeles Ramblers, and the Los Angeles Canadiens. But once the PCHL folded, it was later reborn as the Western Hockey League and the Victoria Cougars moved down to LA to join it and become the Los Angeles 
Blades playing their first game October 13th, 1961 at the Los Angeles Memorial Sports Arena oh, okay. in front of 10,268 people. So the Blades played until 1967 when big changes happened in the hockey world. Money had always been an issue in the mm-hmm. world of professional hockey, but after World War II, with TV broadcasts and transportation and things like that getting faster and cheaper, the NHL actually became profitable. So in the mid-1960s, with all this new money and with the WHL threatening to go big time and challenging the NHL teams for the Stanley Cup, they felt they were ready to expand the league. The Blades felt that they were a natural choice to abandon the WHL and join the NHL since they were the top established team in a major city. But they had the rug pulled out from under them by a man named Jack Kent Cook, who ended up winning the bid for a team. Okay. Let's talk about Cook. Cooking with Cook. Cook talk with Cookie. Cook was born October 25th, 1912 in Hamilton, Ontario. During the Depression, while everybody was folding over, he was going around door-to-door selling encyclopedias all across Canada and eventually turned himself into a wealthy, self-made businessman. He first dipped his hands into the sports world in 1951 when he bought a minor league baseball team called the Toronto Maple Leafs. No relation. In my head, I've put all the names up and then I've erased them and rewrote the same name because it's a different team. <laughs> he gave new life to this team with promotional gimmicks like diaper changing contests oh at home base. My God, stop it. And free tickets on Friday the 13th if you brought a black cat to the stadium with you <laughs> and sacrificed it right in front of him. You love baseball so much. He was successful enough in this that in 1960, he bought a one-fourth interest in the Washington Redskins for $300,000 and in 1965, bought the Los Angeles Lakers for $5.2 million. Really? And finally, in 1960, he bought the rights to have an NHL team in LA for $2 million and on February 9th, 1966 the six new NHL teams were announced Pittsburgh Penguins, the Minnesota North Stars, Uh the Philadelphia Flyers the California Seals, soon to become the Oakland Seals, the St. Louis Blues and the Los Angeles Kings so this, just like the coming in of the Dodgers did for the Hollywood Stars and the Angels, it spelled out doom on ice for the Blades Uh now this is the Kings story. The idea with the expansion was to double the league with the original six making up the Eastern division and the expansion six making up the western division so this doubled the size of the nhl and even though teams like philadelphia they feel older to me than the kings but that's just west coast inferiority complex the kings (laughs) the kings are as close to an original six team as you're gonna get okay so to populate these teams and to create an equal playing field there was an expansion draft with all players in the league being eligible so the original six teams were able to protect one goalie and 11 players from being taken from them but all the rest for upper relocation to whatever new team drafted them wow really yeah it's kind of cruel but, yeah but they wanted to make it fair i guess and fair it was for those people's loving families that <laughs> had to move to st louis <laughs> the kings had the first pick in this draft and took the goalie terry sawchuck from toronto the 1967 to 68 season was the first with the kings and the other expansion teams in the nhl the Kings sort of copied the logo of a crown from the old monarchs team and cook gave them the same color scheme as his other la team the lakers of purple and gold the first coach was red kelly and bob Bob Wall was the first captain. Mm -hmm. Cook wanted a shiny new home for his LA teams, so he began construction on the $16 million Fabulous Forum. Unfortunately, when the King season started, it wasn't ready, (laughs) so the Kings had their first ever game on October 14th, 1967 at the not-so-fabulous Long Beach Arena (laughs) in front of 7,023 people. The arena could hold (laughs) 11,200 people. (laughs) It's got a gut feeling that it was too many people. They passed the halfway mark. They won 4-2 against Philadelphia 
they played a second game the next night there with only 4,289 people. And reasonable, reasonable. A lot less reasonable, yeah. but reasonable Reason- nonetheless. Yeah. Before going on a road trip and never coming back to Long Beach, when they did come back on October 31st, they played at their new temporary home of the Los Angeles Memorial Sports Arena. Ooh. So this place, this old relic, opened up July 4th, 1959 and could hold 14,546, was the home of the Lakers as well yeah. at the time. The Kings stayed here until December 21st when finally they could move into the Forum at 3900 Manchester Boulevard and beautiful Inglewood. It was designed by Charles Luckman, who also did the Googie theme building and the not-so-Googie Madison Square Garden in New York, and it was built to resemble some sort of Roman Forum (laughs) and could seat 16,005 people inside, and you were lucky to be one of those five. I've got the golden ticket. (laughs) And four more. The first Kings game here was December 30th against Philadelphia. Yet again, the Mm -hmm. Kings lost 2-0. Cook was an interesting guy. He wanted his team to succeed, so he did things like in 1969, threatened to fine all Kings players $100 if they didn't argue bad calls made by refs during wow. the games. He had bought the American Hockey League team in Springfield, Massachusetts as the Kings farm team, but we really didn't have any stars on the team yet, so Cook decided, since he didn't have big stars that fans could get excited about, he could at least have players with big nicknames. <laughs> so he gave thing. his players nicknames like Cowboy, oh The God. Jet, <sighs> The Entertainer, Frenchie, and Whitey. Oh my God. A good nickname God. for this campaign is didn't work. <laughs> Nobody cared. The Kings weren't Nobody very liked good. Cowboy. Everyone loved Whitey at that time, <laughs> didn't they? So the Kings weren't very good, which will be a theme for most of their history. <laughs> and all they had going for them was a very good goalie named Rogie Vachon. Uh-huh. But that changed in 1975 when the Kings brought in a center from the Red Wings named Marcel Dion. So then the Kings in 1977 started playing a 210th overall draft pick that they had taken named Dave Taylor. Then 1978, Dion and Taylor got paired on a line with a man named Charlie Simmer, and what was born was called the Triple Crown line. So this line lasted for six seasons. It would average between the three players 280 points per season. So in the 80-81 season, this line became the first line in history where each player got over 100 points. Okay. Bear in mind, there's 82 games in a hockey season. I didn't know that. You thought there were 150, didn't you? Yeah. So that's over a point a game for these people. A point is a goal or an assist. I feel like I knew that. Yeah. Well, I felt you needed a little bit of a spanking to understand. So, Is it the fact that I was shaking when I asked? Yeah. So in that season, Simmer had 105 points. Okay. Taylor had 112. Dion had 135 wow. points. By the end of Dion's time with the Kings, he had seven 100-point seasons. He is now in the Hall of Fame. Jesus. Simmer is not, but he holds the Kings' longest goal-scoring streak at 13 games. Taylor is not in the Hall of Fame either, but he did go on to become the Kings' general manager years later. Okay. I feel like uh, you might not appreciate the gravity yet. There's 82 games. If you get 20 goals in a season, that's a good season. If you get 40 goals, you're like an elite player. So these people were getting a lot of points. I think I got that. So (laughs) I didn't think your little patootie was red enough, so I decided to spank you a little further. If I can watch you play a little hockey, it'll make more sense. (laughs) So I brought you a rod? (laughs) Grab your hockey rod, boys. So the 70s were really held up by these Vashon, Dion, Taylor, and Simmer. Okay. But no championship to show for it, not even making it to the finals. Then Cook decided he wanted to get out of the good old hockey game in 1979. That same year, he got divorced from his wife, Jeannie Carnegie, and had to pay $49 million in a settlement, making it the biggest divorce settlement at the time, a record LA also once held from Henry Huntington's divorce. (laughs) Also, the judge was Joseph Wapner, who went on to be the judge of the people's court. 
Los Angeles. Only in LA, <laughs> where everybody's on a TV show. Even the man sentencing you to death. So all in all, Cook ended up getting married five separate times to four separate women. Okay. In addition to the king's... Li- yeah, he remarried one this of them. Okay, I figured, but yeah. it was weird. Numbers are weird to me. <laughs> in addition to the king's Lakers and Redskins, Cook also owned the Los Angeles Wolves of the United Soccer Association for a little bit, owned a farm in Kentucky that bred racehorses, and was also the promoter of the Ali Frazier fight of the century. Oh. He died of a heart attack. April because 6th. 1977. It was the heart attack of the century for him. <laughs> but back in 79, he had sold the Forum, Kings, and the Lakers to a man named Jerry Buss okay. for $67.5 million in what was the biggest deal in sports history at the time. Dr. Jerry Buss was a poor boy from my Wyoming, from my Wyoming, my hometown <laughs> of Wyoming, California. Your Wyoming? He got his bachelor's at the University of Wyoming and then got his PhD in chemistry at USC. Chemistry just wasn't enough for poor boy Buss. And he started investing in real estate and soon became a multi-millionaire with property in California, Arizona, and Nevada. But chemistry and real estate just weren't enough for poor boy Buss, who wanted to be involved in sports also. His first foray into the world of sports was in the 70s with the Los Angeles Strings, a local team tennis team. Oh, it wasn't an orchestra? It was a team tennis team. Team tennis Team. Team. There's no better way to put that. In addition to the Kings and Lakers, he also ended up owning another team he brought to play at the Forum, the LA Lasers of the Major Indoor Soccer League. Buss also ended up launching the Prime Ticket Network, which was Southern California's first cable sports network. What was it called? The Prime Ticket. Okay. That's... Oh my god, you, do you even know sports? Do you even lift, man? I mean, what do you drink? Do you drink muscle milk? Come on, how much you bench? Show me your glutes. I have photos of everything I don't take off my clothes ever. <laughs> Give me your email address, I'll send you very <laughs> raunchy stuff. Very illegal. So the biggest moment for the Kings under Buss's rule happened April 10th, 1982. Kings were in the playoffs against the Edmonton Oilers, who were being led by... Wayne Gretzky. It was the third period and the Kings were down five to nothing, ended up scoring five goals in a row, pushing the game to overtime where Daryl Evans of the Kings scored and the Kings won six to five. Evans is now one of the radio announcers for the Kings. Oh, cool. And this was the biggest come black come black. This was the biggest come black in playoff history. This win, it's known as the miracle on Manchester oh. among older Kings fans. I was never impressed by it. I never <laughs> understood why people were so obsessed by it because they won the game and then won that playoff series but then they lost in the next round and still never won a Stanley Cup. So it was basically like the biggest victory, but it was, it was still like a loss in anyone yeah. else's book. Yeah. But before the Kings actually won the Cup, this was the proudest moment in Kings <laughs> oh, history. So sad. And it was, it was very sad. Yeah. The real miracle on Manchester is that people didn't kill themselves <laughs> after worshipping this. So during the bus years, the Kings got a few now legendary players that were drafted by and grown in the Kings organization, like Bernie Nichols, who was drafted 73rd overall, mm-hmm. and now has the team record of 70 goals in one season, which again, 50 goals, you're spectacular. 70 goals is ridiculous. And also Luke Robitaille, who was drafted 171st overall. Robitaille was not a very good skater, but the Kings, for some reason, took a chance on him. He retired with more points than any left winger ever to play the game with 668 goals and 1,394 assists. He's also the Kings' all-time leading scorer with 577. He has a statue in front of him at Staples Center. He's in the Hall of fame and he's now the king's president of business operations if you go to king's games and you walk around you'll probably see him and he's very nice he'll shake your hand he's shaking my hand many a time and i said why aren't you still playing and how come you're not giving me money 
You're not a very good skater. <laughs> you don't walk very well either. Yeah, you'll hear people call out his name, Luke. They're not saying boo, they're saying Luke. Okay, I'll remember that next time. When, when you're booing, saying, I'm yeah. saying boo. Okay. Book. Read a book. <laughs> However, even with all these homegrown players, the King still never won a Stanley Cup. Oh my God. And they still weren't very good. So <laughs> under... <laughs> I don't know why I'm talking about that. <laughs> Frankly, I think this episode should have ended an hour ago <laughs> when the Dodgers left Brooklyn. <laughs> so under Cook, they had gotten into the habit of trading away draft picks to get aging veterans and that rich and beautiful tradition of bad trades continued during the bus years. Marcel Dion was even traded to the Rangers in 1987 and then it was time for the Kings to make big changes. They joined the MLB. (laughs) They joined with Burger King to become the Burger Kings. They actually had a jersey in like the 90s called the Burger King jersey because it looked like they had a face on it that looked like the Burger King King and it's like recognized by everybody as the ugliest jersey ever to be. (laughs) Well I simply need one. I got one for every listener, which is two. One for you, one for me. (laughs) Only people listening. I listen to you, you listen to me. (laughs) So big changes. 1986. Bus had sold 25% of the Kings to a very sleazy looking guy (laughs) by the name of Bruce McNall. Then the next year, sleazy looking McNall bought up 24% more of the team and became the Kings' biggest shareholder. Then in March 1988, he bought up all the rest of the team. So we're in sleazy hands now. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Now who was this mysterious sleazy man hand? tell me more about sleazy. Bruce McNall was born April 17th, 1950 in Arcadia. Oh. Bruce of Arcadia. He loved collecting coins. So at age 14, he got a job at a coin store Mm -hmm. in Arcadia. By 15, he owned that store, but he eventually went to UCLA to study ancient history. Uh In 1971, he opened up a shop in Beverly Hill called Numismatic Fine Arts International, which is apparently a very big deal in the coin collecting world. They've dealt coins to the Met in New York and the Louvre. His first experience in the sports world came 1980 when he became part owner of the Dallas Mavericks, the finest moment in McNall's coining life came in 1974 when he won at auction an Athenian Decadracum, which is apparently like the Mona Lisa of Greek coins. Yeah. To win it, he outbid Aristotle Onassis, Jackie Kennedy's second husband, Ooh, wow. and Valerie Giscard d'Estaing, who a few months later after this was so distraught, he became president of France. <laughs> but there was one coin he really wanted, a coin made out of human. <laughs> the most dangerous coin. <laughs> and on August 9th, 1988, he finally got that coin. That coin's name... Wayne the Coin Gretzky. (laughs) This was one of the biggest moments in NHL history and maybe in all of sports history. And it was certainly the biggest in King's history up to that point. To understand why this was such a big deal, because not everybody gets it. I don't get it. Let's figure out who this Wayne Gretzky was. It's Wayne Gretzky. What more do you need to know? Drop the microphone. (laughs) Please don't. It took a long time to set us up. So he was born January 26, 1961 in Brantford, Ontario. Shortly after, he scored his first goal. (laughs) He shot his placenta back into his mom. (laughs) Top shelf. He was a child prodigy and every scout in North America was just waiting for him to turn 18 and when he finally did in 1979 he joined the Edmonton Oilers. The best way to explain how good he was is to just list some of his accomplishments. He won the Stanley Cup with Edmonton four times between 1984 and 1988. Wow. Yeah. That's like one a year. He won the Art Ross Trophy for the player with the most points which is goals and assists like I said in the league ten times including every year between 81 and 
187. He holds the all-time NHL records for most career points with 2,857. Goals with 894. Assists, 1,964. Goals in one season, 92. Again, there's 82 games in a season. He scored 92 goals. Longest point streak, 51 games. Points in a season, 215. Assists in a season, 163. He holds a total of 61 NHL records, and most of them, I cannot see how they could ever be broken. It's just not possible. In his first season in LA, he had 54 goals and 114 assists for a total of 168 points, which is a team record. The trade, as it's called, involved Edmonton giving us Gretzky, Mike Krusilinski, and Marty McSorley. McSorley, sorry, but he was very surly. (laughs) In return for Jimmy Carson, Martin Galinas, and first round draft picks for the next three years and $15 million. Oh my God. God, for those three players? One of of which was the coin. It was for... This guy McNall's later said, like, basically, I bought Wayne Gretzky, but disguised it as a trade. I think You can't just buy a player. Yeah. So the rest was just, like, the cut-up pieces of paper in the package that Wayne Gretzky came in. So he doesn't get hurt on the way over here. Marty McSorley was packaged around (laughs) him the whole time. You safe? I can't breathe! (laughs) So it was the biggest sports trade since Babe Ruth went to the Yankees 68 years earlier. Edmonton and Canada in general was not happy about this trade because he was, like, he was theirs. He was their yeah. icon. Many blamed him leaving on his wife, Janet Jones, who was an aspiring actress in LA. She was in Beastmaster, A Chorus Line, and A League of Their Own. Really? Yeah. She who might have she, cried. Who was she in Beastmaster? Who uh, was she in A League of Their Own? I remember her from Chorus Line. <laughs> Gretzky took the Kings to the playoff that year, his first year, and they were yeah. matched up against Edmonton. Yeah. Not Just a like happy, A League of Their Own. Not a very welcoming... Sorry, but I gotta beat you. It's just what I do. Wayne Gretzky out. <laughs> Sorry, you've been Gretzky. <laughs> Trademark. <laughs> he put sunglasses on his ice skates, which were shaped like surfboards. So the Kings won that series, but Gretzky was booed the whole way oh, through. Oh. He became team captain a year later, 1989, and in the 1990-91 season, he helped the Kings finish the season first in the league for the first and only time that has oh, ever happened. But more than just being good for the team, Gretzky was good for hockey in California. The Oakland team had moved to Cleveland in 1970 and the Disney-owned Mighty Ducks didn't quack their way out of hell <laughs> and, it, and into double hell, Anaheim, until 1993. So at this time, LA was the only professional hockey team on the West Coast. Yeah. And having a crossover sports megastar like Wayne Gretzky coming to town, it got a lot of people interested. In the 91-92 season, they sold out every single game for the first time in wow. Kings history. And being LA, celebrities started showing up at games, which some of the players said gave a slight advantage because if a player from another team looks over and sees Richard Gere sitting against the class. <laughs> it distracted for just a split second and give the Kings an yeah. advantage. The Kings had always been a second-rate team to the Lakers and your precious Dodgers that you won't shut up about. But with Gretzky in town, they were finally starting to getting some respect. And all of a sudden, LA was one of the country's biggest hockey cities. Uh-huh. Even more than that, Gretzky was a good role model. He was a nice Canadian guy. He lived in Tarzana. Mm. Those are the two qualifications. <laughs> so he and the rest of the Kings started to actively get involved in the local community to get more people, especially kids interested in hockey so that meant new generations of fans would grow up liking hockey in LA and passing that on to their kids. A lot of kids like Greg started playing roller hockey 
And then more ice rinks started being built, and eventually players from LA and Southern California started showing up in the NHL years later, like mm-hmm. nowadays. This interest that Gretzky created in LA is what even led to the possibility that there could be teams in Anaheim and San Jose like there are now. Yeah. But along with a rebirth of hockey in LA, Gretzky coming to the Kings ushered in a new era for the NHL. The contract Gretzky signed with the Kings was for eight years at $20 million. So there were some years in LA that Gretzky was making $3 million for one year, which was unheard of in the NHL. Yeah. This was the first instance that led to what we now have, which is sort of these big, mega, high-paying salaries. The forum itself that same year had its naming rights sold to Great Western Banks, so it was now rechristened the Great Western Forum, which was one of the first instances of a corporation buying its name onto a major sports venue. Yeah. A lot of people were upset about this because it got them all up in arms against a corporate branding dystopia future that happened. You mean you don't like the Gibson Amphitheater or the Verizon Wireless Theater? Oh, beautiful. beautiful. I don't like Nokia Live, but I like Microsoft Live, which is what it now is. Nokia Theater, that is. I know what you meant. Whatever. Whatever. Take them all down, man. <laughs> so it was also a new era for the Kings. When Gretzky was first introduced as a King, he came out wearing the new redesigned Kings jersey with the new logo and the new silver and black colors they shared with the Raiders. It's very nice. And with that came an almost great run for the Kings. In 1993, Gretzky led the Kings to its first ever Stanley Cup final. Did against... they even know what that was? They didn't know that the season went on that long. <laughs> We're still playing? I'm tired. I just do this for the mega salary. So this series, the first finals ever for the Kings was against Montreal. The Kings won game one. Looking good. Yeah. Then came game two. Kings are winning. All of a sudden, Marty McSorley's stick caught the eye of one of the officials. They examined it. Turns out, had an illegal curve on it. Oh, you surly bastard. (laughs) He got a major penalty and Montreal fought back, ended up winning the game, then winning the next three games and winning the Stanley Cup. Thus started the true loser years of the Los Angeles Kings. The next season, there was a lot of internal strife on what direction the team should take. The organization wanted youth. Gretzky wanted established players that could keep up with him. But constructive problems like these were the least of the Kings' problems. (laughs) Sleazy McNall had been very busy financially and had his grubby little fingers in a lot of different pies. In 1990, he bought controlling interest in Superior Stamp and Coin, now known as Superior Galleries, which is the largest U.S. coin dealer in the world. Mm -hmm. March 22nd, 1991, he and Gretzky won at auction the 1910 T206 Honus Wagner baseball card, that like old Pittsburgh Pirate thing. They bought it for $451,000, which is the most valuable piece of sports memorabilia in the world. Also in 1991, he and Gretzky were at it again, this time with John Candy to buy the Toronto Argonauts of the Canadian Football League. Between Uncle Buck and Harry Crumb. <laughs> I'm gonna go buy a football league. <laughs> McNall also formed both Sherwood Productions and Gladden Entertainment Production Companies, which made movies like Mr. Mom, The Fabulous Baker Boys, and Weekend at Bernie's. Three classic American films. Still wouldn't let Gretzky's wife in. He was also in the horse breeding business, along with being chairman of the NHL's Board of Governors from 1992 to 94. If you couldn't tell, he spent his money very lavishly. Yeah. He got the Kings their own private plane. He would buy very expensive gifts for the players. He once gave the team a million dollars for beating Ottawa in Ottawa for the first time ever, which was against NHL rules. Not to beat Ottawa. <laughs> That's allowed. But giving that sort of money to your players yeah. under the table, not allowed. Of course, financial troubles began. Uh, what are you trying to say? Did you say that if there's an up, there's a noun? All great things must pass. No, 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 that's not true. Like kidney stones. Five weeks before the 93 
finals began, he had to take out a $2.8 million loan just to pay the people who worked for the team. Some of the staff members' checks bounced. The day the finals began, he defaulted on a loan to Bank of America who threatened to bankrupt the Kings if he didn't sell the team and pay them back, which is exactly what he did. (laughs) But his troubles weren't over. He came under federal investigation and ended up pleading guilty to five counts of conspiracy and fraud and to getting $236 million in fraudulent bank loans from six different banks and was sentenced to 70 months in jail. In here, I had so much faith in someone looking sleazy and not being sleazy. And here we are. He lived up to his face. (laughs) So regardless of how his time went with the Kings, he's out of prison and he's still on good terms with the team. And he really did a lot of good for expanding hockey in LA. So who had he sold it to? Sony apparently was interested in buying the Kings, but they were moving too slowly because he was going to prison. (laughs) So on May 16th, 1994, two men named Joseph Cohen and Jerry Sudikoff brought 72% of the team for $60 million. Sudikoff was the founder of a media company named IDB Communications Group, Inc. Oh, I I love their uh, nothing. (laughs) I love their nebulous work. They did technical consulting for stations like NBC, ABC, RKO, our logo. Cohen had founded the MSG Network in New York and was also a co-founder, not the stuff that you put in Chinese. I I had to think about it, but thanks for telling me. The MSG Syndicate that's making us hungry in 20 minutes. He was also co-founder of the USA Network. He negotiated the first cable contracts for the NBA, NHL, and the MLB with USA Network. However, these men were not as rich as McNall, so the team had to get downsized. Players like McSorley left, then the 94-95 season got shortened by a lockout and the lack of revenue drove the Kings to bankruptcy on September 20th, 1995. Cohen and Sudikoff were just temporary stewards as they quickly sold the Kings in October 1995 to their current owners, Philip Anschutz and Edward Roski, for $113.25 million. Roski is a local boy who went to Loyola High School in USC. Mm -hmm. Anschutz is a titan, a mythical titan who owns the Anschutz Corporation. He puts the A in AEG. Oh, really? Anschutz Entertainment Group. This was the start of yet another era for the Kings, an era that unfortunately had no room for Wayne Gretzky. They wanted him to stay, but the direction they were headed was not what he wanted. They traded him to St. Louis. He may not have played his best hockey in LA, but it seems like that were the team that he most identifies with, which is why there's a statue of him also in front of Staples Center. Plaque marks the spot. Statue marks the center. (laughs) The best player ever to play left us, and still we had no Stanley Cup. Oh my god. But maybe a change in scenery would help cheer us up. In 1996, Anschutz and Roski started looking for a new, more modern home for the Kings. They selected as the future location of their new home, 1111. That's all the ones. B- they, a binary road. In the robotic district. <laughs> Zip code 0000. zero, zero, zero <laughs> 1. So this was on Figueroa in downtown, which at the time was just an unused space next to the convention center. Yeah. $407 million changed hands and the process began. Meanwhile, Jerry Buss, who still owned the forum, sold the forum oh. in 1999 to LA Arena Company. And then that changed hands once again the next year when it was sold to the Faithful Central Bible Church of Inglewood for $22.5 million. They had some services there, like religious services that is, up until 2009, but it didn't get all churchy like the old theaters in downtown. They maintained it as an active performing arts venue. It was the first multi-purpose arena owned by African Americans. So then on June 26, 2012, the Madison Square Garden Company bought the forum for $23.5 million and then in 2013 gave it a $76.5 million renovation with Chase as its new major sponsor to bring it back to its old glory and to refocus it solely on entertainment and music rather than sports. So the forum, just to close out their story, they've had a long music 
musical history. The, yeah. the first ever concert there was Deep Purple, <laughs> opening for Cream. Queen played there. Oh. David Bowie, Jimi Hendrix, Elvis, oh. Led Zeppelin played there 16 times in a week. <laughs> Get One the week. let out. <laughs> the grand reopening of the forum was January 15, 2014, with a three night stand by the Eagles. Oh, they King. only played Hotel California <laughs> for three nights straight. <laughs> it was one show. It lasted three nights because Hotel California would not end. It never, it never ends. And you can never leave. <laughs> Is that song about ghosts? I keep asking that. It has to be. So over their stint there, the Kings had played 1,204 regular season games, 69 playoff games, and the 33rd NHL All-Star game was held there February 10th, 1981. Back in 1999, the Kings were now at home in the Staples Center. Opened October 17th, Woo! 1999, Woo! with a Bruce Springsteen concert. Oh. You're making me born to run. The first Kings game there was three days later, a 2-2 tie against Boston. It can seat 18,118. You mentioned the slope at which the seats are built because it feels it's like... It's very frightening. It's, it's, man was not meant to stand up and go to concessions there. You're not supposed to jump down to get back <laughs> into the aisle. For hockey games, it could fit that much. It has three levels of executive suites that have been perpetually leased out since 2010, wow. so you cannot get those. It has 1,200 monitors, an eight-sided mega board complete with a $1.5 million Bose sound system, 23 places to eat, including a 300-seat restaurant. They were named by PETA as the most vegetarian-friendly venue. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. And also by Guy Fieri as the <laughs> meatiest place on Meat Man. <laughs> oh, devil horn. Devil man. corn covered in ranch <laughs> sauce. In 2008, they installed 1,727 solar panels on the roof, and in 2014, they became the first American hockey arena to have an energy-efficient LED light system. We care here. Welcome to Staples Center. We care. $40, please. Ah. They originally attended to have a service where someone could call Staples Center, give them your seat number, and then someone would bring you at your seat a Pacific Bell telephone to take the call. Wow. Yeah. And if you needed a stapler, they got it. You came to the right place, buddy. It's the center for that. They get over 4 million visitors a year for over 250 events, including things in the past like the Democratic National Convention, American Idol, the second Democratic <laughs> National <laughs> Convention, the Grammys, the MTV Video Music Awards, Michael Jackson, funeral, who, which actually he was using the forum to rehearse for his new tour at really? the time that he died. Big hockey fan. He loves it. Loves it. The 52nd NHL All-Star Game was there in 2002, and WrestleMania 21 in Woo! 2005 set a Staples Center attendance record of 20,193 people. There's that many wrestling fans in the world? They were all there. They came from all over. Norway, one Austria, of, one of you. Botswana. <laughs> Staples paid $116 million for the naming rights for 20 years, but in 2009, they converted that into the first ever lifetime naming deal of a major arena. Wow. So it's always going to be called Staples Center. How do you feel about it being called Staples Center? Hey, as long as there's Staples. Someone in like high school or something thought it was called Staples Center because it looks like there's a stapler on the roof. Just a coincidence. You can't argue with that logic. You just have to accept that there's people like that. <laughs> the Kings signed a 25-year lease to play there. This place was built for them, but then the basketball teams followed them there, yeah. and they made it the first facility to host three pro teams. Then the WNBA Sparks came to play, and mm -hmm. so did the Arena Football League Avengers came to play. Right. The construction of LA Live, which I always thought was like, Stable Center? All right, we'll build LA Live. Yeah. LA Live came with the deal. That oh, was part huh. of the deal that they had to build I that. Had no idea. The creation of LA Live sparked more restaurants coming to the area, which yeah. led to more apartments going up, which gave people a reason to come downtown other than to work and started the whole renaissance that downtown is currently in. Right. So there might not be any resurgence going on in downtown right now without LA Live and the Staples Center, and there would be no Staples Center without the Kings. Wow. So 
You're welcome. Oh, On behalf boy. of the ghost of Wayne Gretzky, <laughs> who is still alive. <laughs> the part of him that died still haunts the Staples Center. The, the early days in the Staples Center were reliably lackluster. Just before the move to Staples, they had brought back the purple in their uniform, so that was something, but the team was just not good. And yeah. this was the time that little Daniel decided to become a Kings fan. <laughs> they were not easy times. Frustration is the best way to describe it. The stars of this era were guys like Ziggy Palfi, Jason Allison, Adam Dedmarsh, Matthias Nordstrom. The entire 2004 2005 season was canceled because of a lockout. Worst thing to happen to the organization was in 2001 when Garnet Ace Bailey, the Kings director of pro scouting and one of his scouts, Mark Bavis, died on flight 175 coming out of Boston that hit Tower 2 on September 11th. Yeah, In honor of them on September 21st, 2007, Bailey, the new Kings mascot, was unveiled. He's a six foot tall lion that wears number (laughs) 72 because it's always 72 degrees in Los Angeles. (laughs) Except for now when global warming at a zero at the end. <laughs> so this was actually not the first Kings mascot. The first was a mercifully forgotten snow leopard named Kingston in 1990. Oh, you no one's gonna like you. <laughs> as bad as this was, former player and general manager Dave Taylor and his successor Dean Lombardi started rebuilding the team out of young draft picks and while the older Kings were getting career-ending concussions non-stop <laughs> and disappointing Daniel year Just after year. showing off. While this was going on, young Kings-grown draft picks like Dustin Brown, Drew Daddy, Andre Kopitar, and Jonathan Quick started coming into the mix. Yet another decade ended with no Stanley Cup, Great. but the 2010s was a whole new organization. In 2008, Dustin Brown had become the 15th captain in Kings history, and at 23 years old, he was the youngest captain ever, and also their first American captain. Mm-hmm. Go America. So there was a younger leadership of the team, of mostly younger players. In 2011, they got their seventh and current logo and switched once again to silver and white, so they had a whole new look as well. Then came the 2011-2012 season. Just another season. Yeah, no big deal. Then in December, switched coaches. They got Daryl Sutter. He was a former player from a very successful hockey family. In 1982, he and four of his brothers were all playing in the (laughs) NHL at once. So now with a new coach, the Kings managed to make it into the playoffs. In the eighth and final seed, last place, (laughs) nobody expected much, especially since they were matched up against Vancouver, who had finished first place in the entire league. Miraculously, the Kings beat them. Then they were faced up against St. Louis, who finished second place in the West, swept them in four games. Then they were up against Phoenix, who is the third place team. They managed to beat them and make it to the Stanley Cup Finals for only the second time in their history. First time without Wayne Gretzky. Nowhere to be found. Hmm. Mm, ghost. They played the New Jersey Devils in the finals, and in Game 6, after 45 years of existing, they won their first Stanley Cup, beating New Jersey 6-1. to one. This made them not just the first 8th-seeded hockey team to ever win the Stanley Cup, but also the first North American team in any pro sport to have done that. Jonathan Quick was MVP, Drew Daddy was a hero, Andrzej Kopitar became the first Slovenian to ever win the Cup, and Dustin Brown became the second American captain to win the Cup and the first king to ever touch it. <laughs> The team was mostly kept intact, but the next season was cut in half by another lockout, and the Kings oh made it God. to the Western Finals, but lost. Yeah. Then came 2013-14 season. Made it to the playoffs yet again, but this time the storyline was all about comebacks. In the first round, they were matched against San Jose, lost the first three games, then managed to win four in a row oh, cool. to advance. Then they were matched up with the third California team, those foul fouls from Anaheim, <laughs> the Ducks. It took seven games to beat them. Then in the Western Finals, they were up against Chicago, 
Chicago, who was the team that knocked them out the year before and the champions from the year before. They had to go the full seven games again. So this is seven games in all three rounds so far against them to finally win in overtime with a goal by Alec Martinez. Then to the finals yet again, third time ever, where they beat the New York Rangers in game five, double overtime with a goal once again by Alec Martinez. Took 26 playoff games to win the Stanley Cup, the longest it has ever taken any team. So now LA was an almost back-to-back Stanley Cup winner. So what do they give us as an encore the next season? Don't even make it to the playoffs. <laughs> Back to their old tricks. Last season's most significant moment was on January 25th, 2014, when the Kings played the Ducks in Dodger Stadium oh. for the first outdoor regular season NHL game west of the Mississippi. Other than that, terrible, disappointing season. <laughs> the team even went into, they're in the middle of a sort of identity crisis when one of the star players, Slava Voinov, got 90 days in jail for beating his wife on Halloween. Was suspended for most of the season. He just announced a few days ago that he will be returning to Russia and leaving the Kings permanently. Oh. Good riddance. (laughs) After the season was over, Jarrett Stoll, another player, got arrested in Las Vegas for bringing ecstasy to the hotel pool. Now, Mike Richards, another player, is challenging the Kings legally for what he sees as an illegal termination of his contract after he was stopped at the Canadian border for smuggling Oxycontin. Other than that, still a pretty good organization. (laughs) There are 21 people from the Kings organization in the Hall of Fame, including Arvin Scully, Bob Miller, he's our TV announcer, who has been with the Kings for 42 years. The retired numbers hang in Staples Center are 16 for Marcel Dion, 18 for Dave Taylor, 20 for Luke Robitaille, 30 for Rogi Vashon, 99 for Wayne Gretzky. They've made it to the playoffs 28 times and are about to start their 49th season. They train in El Segundo. Most of the players live in the South Bay. It's not uncommon to see them around Manhattan Beach. Yeah. Hey, how's it going, Drew Daddy? Don't talk to me. I told you. <laughs> don't take drugs. Don't, don't do drugs, except if you're on the Kings. Mm-hmm. But what's to be proud of most is that the four biggest stars on the team right now, Brown, Kopitar, Quick, and Dowdy, were not local boys, but locally groomed by the team and made into superstars. Wayne Gretzky is even called Kopitar the third best player in the league right now. And with two Stanley Cups in the city's recent past, time will show if that will have any influence on future hockey legends that may be born in the LA area. Could be you, Greg. I've been trying. I just want to impress you. He was legendary for making to the NHL at age 80. (laughs) Everyone thought he wouldn't make it. He died before that, but he said, no, (laughs) I'm going to die on the ice. Are you hopeful for the upcoming hockey season for the Kings? Sure. There's been a lot of changes with all this drug stuff and beating your wife. I'm very, uh, can't help but like keep up with the Dodgers. And you can hear it from your room. Exactly. But you actively follow the Kings. Like you go to games, you like follow them to bars after they win the cup. I tried to find them everywhere. I follow them to their homes. I beat their wives (laughs) and blame it on them. Knowing their entire history now, do you have more or less appreciation for them? Let's say it broke even. Okay. (laughs) That that seems about right. There was a weird pride, but I didn't know that like until recently that they won the cup. Until like three minutes ago that they won. Yeah, I actually wrote the time down. <laughs> Winning the cup was, uh, it was something. It yeah. was very emotional. Because like growing up, I, I, I want to say like 2000 or 1999. Yeah. Like it wasn't, I didn't know them in the forum, but I knew them at Staples Center. I guess it was like their first year at Staples Center. Yeah. But just like growing up, wearing my Kings jersey to school <laughs> and everyone like, oh, you're a loser like the Kings. They lose every year. Yeah, I know. I love them. <laughs> and then they finally, were your bums. Yeah, they were my bums. And then finally, after 12 years of liking them, they finally won. It was, people were crying and not being made fun of for it. it was <laughs> It's very emotional. That's Wayne Gretzky for That's you. Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky? You're the Krumpus to Mike Piazza's Santa Claus? Oh, no. So that's a much longer story yeah. of sports. That is the last two-part episode we are ever yeah, doing. No, Tune in spend. next month when we're back to our old tricks. Food that has been murdered. <laughs> so go uh, win the World Series with the Dodgers, whatever they're doing. Go to a few Kings games. There's, yeah. there's a lot of ways to get cheap tickets. It's a lot of fun. I'll sum up the last two months. Dodgers Stadium is a beautiful place. 
<laughs> even if family grew up in Chavez Ravine and they were kicked <laughs> off. Dutch Come on, put it, forgive and forget. <laughs> so I think that's it. I mean, we've got I, that's the entire history of Los Angeles. And good night, everybody. That's it. I mean, Memorial I feel like Meekly. we can be. I feel like we can coach these teams now. I mean, I get it. I'm like mainlining information now. I think if we pool our money, we can buy the Dodgers. You think so? It's the, just going to take a little magic <laughs> to die. Let me finish. <laughs> By murder. By me. At our hands. And Michael Jordan. Who is always helping me kill NBA stars. We have like really good teams here. It's, it's a good place to grow up and not be ashamed of your teams, even if your teams didn't win the cup. Till. I just pray every team gets the chance to win the Stanley Cup. It's just so nice. Lakers, Clippers, the rest of them. So yeah, sports. They're good. Play a little. Anyway. Uh, It'll be a little wiener. <laughs> get off your fat little butts, kids. <laughs> Stop playing your Super Mario Kart. Sure, the Dodgers and the Kings have been immortalized in the halls of Los Angeles sports history. But how about you immortalize your own words on the iTunes review page for LA Meekly? And leave one. A positive one. Five stars for every Stanley Cup that the Kings <laughs> missed out on. <laughs> you can follow us on Instagram, LA underscore Meekly. Fun pictures. Fun pictures. Some not so fun. I'm Some that make you think. Follow us on Twitter at LA Meekly. Uh, like us on Facebook. We have lots of stuff that's relevant to you. We uh, know where you live, <laughs> what times you go to the bathroom. We're going to post that to everybody. <laughs> so you might want to see who's finding out, who's liking this. We've got money to invest in toilet cameras now. Watch out. <laughs> Watch out, gentlemen. LAMeekly.tumblr.com is the blog that corresponds with whatever we're talking about. Email LA. us, la.meekly at gmail.com. Yes, that's where you can send all your complaints. Yeah. And just be a friend, you know? Just if you see us in the street, shake our hands and say, uh, don't ever do this again. Hey, please. Everything you've said about the Dodgers is wrong. Listen, if you ever talk about Fernando Valenzuela like that again, I'll kill you. But I just said nice things. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Only I can say nice things about him. That has been yet another episode of LA Meekly, keeping Mike Piazza's legend and body alive since 2013. Home run. Stop. Stop.